Good night, everybody. Uh, I hope you're doing fine. And we are here again for another Mr. Stage event. And I hope that you'll enjoy it. I'm sure of it, as a matter of fact. Tonight, uh, we have two great guests, as always. So, thanks to the Mr. FPGA uh, Discord, Trinix, and the Sentient, and everybody that makes this possible. And, of course, thanks to our guests. Thanks to uh, Wicker Waka and Birdie Bro that are here tonight with us to talk about their experience with Mr. FPGA and, of course, about their own experience in the gaming world and uh, within the Mr. World. How are, you, how are you doing, guys? Feeling really good, actually. Had a nice, calm day at work. So oh, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous. feeling I, good. <laughs> I, had a, I had a stressful day at work, so I'm hoping this helps me relax. Oh man, sorry to hear that, and I bet this will change the mood at least. Hopefully. <laughs> so, um, can you tell us a bit uh, about yourselves? Uh, we usually start with, how did you get into games? Uh, could you please uh, answer that, Wicker Waka? Yeah, sure. Um, I, like, I am, um, gosh, when I was like probably seven years old, um, my cousin moved in to live with us for a few months, uh, and I got kicked out of my bedroom. And as payment for that, he brought a like a ZX Spectrum with him. Um, mm. That I this was like 1988, I think, probably something like that. Uh, and it, I think it was like the first time I even like saw a computer or knew what a computer was. Um, and you know, it came with a a box of uh, cassettes with who knows how many games pirated and copied onto them. Um, and I just started going through them and playing all of these Spectrum classics and. Uh, like like Gunfright and Attic Attack and Night Lore and uh, it was a really uh, exciting summer for me just to like play some games um, and I was really sad when he uh, he left and he took it with him I kind of thought it would be with me for uh, for the rest of my life um, so that's like that's like that was really my start um, I think a year or two after that my family got an Atari ST uh, played that for a while I was just thinking when I was preparing for this like what games came with that and like it was like the atari st discovery pack and with it was like bomb jack and carrier command and then i think outrun and space harrier were the other two games that were packed in with it which looking back it's like a pretty awesome collection of, of mm -hmm. games to get on a home computer um and then i think shortly after that it was on to pc and um you know I, I think most of my university was spent playing quake world and counter-strike um and I think eventually I bought a console. I think a PS2 was actually the first console I ever ever owned and since then I've pretty much uh owned every one. Wow. So so you basically uh were a PC uh, oriented guy during the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, for sure. Like I, I there was definitely I had friends and family who had consoles. Um you could even in my town you could rent an entire console um from the video store to play games. I don't know if that was common anywhere else, but I do remember one weekend renting a Genesis and playing um, Sonic 2 just basically nonstop for two days until we could finish it. <laughs> Interesting. Had you played Sonic 1 before that, or it didn't matter at all? I don't think so. I don't know if the plot is that important in the Sonic game. No, no, it's not. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's not at all. <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's when, when you see something with the title and... and... It usually implies that you had to play one, but yeah. back in the day, it didn't matter at all. Yeah, it was just what did they have? Was I think was the, mm -hmm. the biggest question. Yes, and uh, so you didn't have any side on that console war from the nineties. 
No, I was busy fighting in the uh, Atari versus Amiga Wars and the Spectrum oh, versus yes. Commodore Wars. So, um, I've, I've you had your own huge war on, on the yeah. I've done my time on the site. <laughs> Great computers, those. I, I I believe that. Well, we all know for sure that those computers were the ones that enabled the whole generation to to be familiarized and and tinker with stuff, right? Because you you could simply go in there and and code or change change things directly yeah and like it's you know i'm grateful to like have had that opportunity like my um i think with the spectrum came like four issues of this programming magazine called input um which is like what got me started on on programming like once i realized that you could actually make these computers do things that you wanted them to do it was just like the start of a lifetime of, of programming and a, a career in programming yeah, for sure. That that marks us when when you get access to that and you contrast it with what we have today. It's funny, you know, uh, that the manuals came with the the schematics to repair your own computer and the instructions to code for it. And nowadays, there's not even a manual. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a huge change in in terms of uh, usability, but also in terms of accessibility to the technology to educate a new generation. And uh, well, we'll we'll probably be calling you Martin uh, from now on, so that people know uh, to differentiate you both. And uh, and we also have here uh, Birdie Bro. Um, and I'll ask you the same question, Kevin. Uh, what got you into gaming? Well, it's probably even before I even remember. Um, my dad had an Atari Twenty Six Hundred growing up, and. Mm-hmm. Um, basically i mean not growing up but he had it like before i was born and uh he had played pong and pinball and stuff so right off the bat i was playing frogger on the atari 2600 and then um basically my grandma like i would have to go over to her house i have to go to my grandma and grandparents house and i'd have to sit there and play uh the video games and uh you know because it'd be before school and after school i'd stay there and wait for my parents to get out of work and pick me up and uh basically i got hooked more so that time than on the atari that nintendo just really roped me in and uh my grandmother also bought they bought a uh, used um commodore 64 from a garage sale mm. and so that was like my first like computer gaming experiences was like ultima one and two they were probably copied discs or something <laughs> copied floppies you know <laughs> did um, you did you regard that as a huge difference or um it didn't make a, a difference at the time it was all games yeah they were just all games yeah for sure mm. and i was i was probably like i must have been kindergarten when we got the nintendo so yeah i'm i'm probably a little younger than martin over here but <laughs> um but yeah basically at um at around that age uh, my grandma uh, she has, she's the only college educated person in the family on both sides. And, uh, she, she got a master's in English and we used to be an English teacher and she wanted to encourage me to, um, to get, uh, into reading more when I was a kid. And so she asked the, uh, game store people if basically if there were games that had a lot more reading. And so then they directed her to dragon warrior. <laughs> mm. And so, uh, I, had the privilege of growing up with you know dragon warrior and japanese rpgs final fantasy um as well she did you play the the second and, and third or uh for dragon warrior i played one through four yeah mm, when i was a, awesome. when i was a kid growing up um but the best part is my grandma got hooked i've told this story a few times maybe some <laughs> people are used to it but it 
in uh, kindergarten, I'd, I'd come in in the morning and I'd have about an hour to play before I had to go to kindergarten. And I complained to my gram, uh, that's why I call her, uh, complained to my gram about the, um, uh, the fact that I couldn't uh, go to the next stage in the game. I couldn't go to the next stage in the game because, um, you know, my guys weren't strong enough is what I think I told her. My guys aren't strong. <laughs> and uh, so she asked me to show her how to play so she could build up my guys. So I mm. taught my gram how to power level uh, <laughs> for her for me and then she got hooked really bad so yeah it's kind of crazy she got way hooked and so she picked up every single japanese rpg for nintendo super nintendo game boy game boy color game boy advance nintendo ds nintendo 3ds <laughs> you know uh playstation playstation 2 i mean it just goes on and on so yeah it was it was you know she got way into it she plays it more than i do so <laughs> that's awesome and also well rpgs are 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 good for bonding in, in several in several ways and music is all usually awesome on those systems and well on those uh, games. Yeah, for me, um, the biggest connection that I have with those games is definitely the music. Um, when I mm. play through those games, I'll just get to an overworld and I'll just stop and just listen to it pass like five times around. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And then, like Martin, I also did computer gaming for quite a while. Um, I played uh, Defense of the Ancients, which is a, a Warcraft Two mod map. And then the sequel to it, Dota 2, for probably 15 years. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I was trying to be competitive at it, but I was never really that good. But, yeah. It was, I, and do, do you go back to any of these old games or, or not? As far as the old games, yeah, that's about all I play anymore. When everybody was talking about Elden Ring, I just, I just, I don't have any perspective. Um, all I play now are those old school RPGs. Um, I've actually quit playing uh, Dota. It was getting stressful. It's like when you, it's like, uh, I'm kind of like that guy in Napoleon Dynamite where I'm like, oh yeah, I used to be able to throw the football real good, you know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not very good at it anymore and, and it kind of bothers me. So, <laughs> so I, I had to stop played, playing. I've not played Elden Ring yet. I, I have it in my backlog, but uh, I hear it's uh, very similar to old fashioned RPGs from the eighties because it's based on ease and height light and, and uh, they are fans of those. So Maybe you like it. Yeah, I think I need to try it out. Because it has very deep connections to that. Yeah, I think I need to try it out. It it, it does look really good. I was talking to people at work yeah, about it, does. too, and they really like it. So, I mean, it... Yeah, because uh, people see it as regarded as an action game, but it's a, a turn-based RPG action game. It's what it really is, because you have to wait your turn as if it were an active RPG system. Oh, so it does have turn-based. I didn't even know that much about it. <laughs> it, it isn't, but, it, but you have to play it that way. Otherwise, they'll kill you. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you basically you basically have to you basically you are almost timing your moves as if it's as mm -hmm. if it's turn based. Um, yeah, I like I'm not, I'm not like I haven't played a bunch of from software games, but I I definitely I don't know I felt peer pressure to play Elden Ring like everyone's <laughs> playing it, so you gotta you gotta jump in there and play it, and I I, I enjoyed it a lot. But I think um, I don't know what I play these days. Like I have been playing a lot of. Um, you know, because I didn't own consoles in like the Super Nintendo, Nintendo era. Like I feel like I go back and just explore those catalogs um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just try to play, play some of those. Um, but uh, I also, I think about once a year, I go back and play um, Carrier Command on the Atari ST because I'm just, mm. I'm, I'm strangely obsessed with it. Wow. And are there any other games that you remember fondly from that era? 
from back then, like you know, like none of the none of like the Spectrum era games mm-hmm. appeal to me anymore. Like I I loved that system and I appreciate everything that computer did for me, but I really have no interest in sitting down and playing uh, an old Color Clash ZX Spectrum game. Um, they're just like they they look so ugly to me these days, and uh, just not a lot of uh, depth and low frame rate. Like they don't appeal to me. But like the I don't know. I feel like the eight bit and sixteen bit console games, especially when they're not trying to push the systems in weird ways, like they're almost timeless. Like when you're just playing a like high speed smooth scrolling game, like you can like it doesn't matter if that's a an indie game that came out this year or like a platformer that came out 30 years ago. I just like, they just seem very playable. Um, so I'm playing right now. I'm playing earthworm Jim two on the, uh, ah, on the mega hmm. drive, which um, it's just such a wacky game. I gotta ask you because I did play an Atari ST game as I was growing up and I, and it was one that I played on the Atari 6, uh, 2600. So I love it. It's star riders. Did you ever play that? I don't think I ever played star riders. Okay. I'm, I've never played that I, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if you'd like that now, but it was uh, so complicated in in the Atari 2600 because you had to use the color switches and the, and the reset and every single switch that was on the on the console was a control for the game. They were not used as in the regular use for the for the game console. I, they were switches to change. Yeah, I remember. I haven't played it, but I do remember reading about that because it, it was kind of like you ended up using the console as like your control yeah. panel. Um, just make sure you don't hit the power switch. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> And uh, obviously, uh, then you you didn't go as uh, as uh, Kevin here into Japanese RPGs as much. No, not like I have. Uh, I don't know if this will get me kicked off of the uh, the stage chat right now, but I've never played a <laughs> Final Fantasy game. Okay, well I'm taking some mod action right now. Let me right click <laughs> on your profile there. Get him kicked out, right? No, that's okay. Uh, if you do play one, uh, it is FF7. I mean, that's cliche, but if you're going to just play one to try one, that's it. You got to okay. go for it. I'll go for it. <laughs> I mean, uh, and what about, I don't know, like the other end of the spectrum, like Zelda? Oh, yeah, no, I've played Zelda. Don't worry about that. You can... No, no, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to, to, to dig into which kind of games uh, uh, you've liked or, or played, because this, this part of the, of the talk is to empathize and, uh, so that the audience can feel what, what made you uh, interested in, in the gaming world, right? Mm-hmm. It so I'm trying to like the interesting thing about like my Atari ST um, period is like I played I played games on there I was like I don't know if it's a, I don't know what the right phrasing is I was fortunate enough to be kind of um, like like I never had much access to to software so what I had like I could never my family couldn't really afford to buy a lot of games so really mm-hmm. I lived off of things like uh, magazine cover discs like yes uh, so there's a ton of games where I've just played the first level because it was a demo on a cover disc um, or it was a uh, it was a free game on the cover disc like there's a game I don't know if anyone has even heard of it called uh, entombed on the Atari ST that was like a mm-hmm. cover disc on ST format and it was like a really insanely difficult platform game um with and like a really like one of those really unfair ones where like there's just you you need to die like you need to go press the button mm-hmm. and see that oh this don't press this button this button kills you um and uh i think i think if you put that game in front of me right now i could probably play through like easily the first two levels without even awesome. thinking about it because i've just played them 
so many times, like to an obsessive level. Um, but when it came to, um, you know, on PC side, it was it was definitely like you know the shooters like Doom, um, the like like ID, uh, like platformers, Keen and Duke Nukem, those kind of things. Like it was mm-hmm. a lot of those games that I could just get my hands on the shareware versions of them and. Yeah, Exum for sure, and Thief. Yeah, yeah. Um, But on the... Did did you get into RTS, meanwhile? uh, Command and Conquer, and uh, Total Annihilation, and uh, Dune. I think I've played, I don't Mm, know how many hours of those. Yeah, of course. They they are great games as well. Yeah, and of course, like, um, uh, the uh, Warcraft 2. I think I don't know how many hours I've spent Mm -hmm. on Warcraft 2. Yeah, that was amazing. Uh (laughs) But I never never got into StarCraft. I don't know why the... Starcraft didn't appeal to me in the same way that the Warcraft RTS did. Maybe setting, right? Yeah, maybe. But I am a star, like I am a sci-fi nerd. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it was that you didn't have a, a well for me at least. Starcraft was a, a community-driven game, so it was like what we used instead instead of uh, hanging out, we we played Starcraft. Oh yeah. Or or Warcraft two, yeah, Warcraft two mainly. Yeah, that's kind of how I was with my friends, actually, Artemio. We were playing a lot of RTS growing up, and uh, basically it was, I mean, that was how we bonded for my close friends. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, we go back to Herzog's Fi. I don't know if you know about that one. Wow. That's like the first yeah, yeah, RTS, yeah. practically. <laughs> yeah, on the, on the Genesis? Yep. Yeah, that's, awesome. we used to play it all the time, and my my buddy was good at it, and uh, he, when he could- Technosoft has amazing music. Oh yeah, it's one of my favorite soundtracks. It's so amazing. I wanted to redo the the sixteen bit audio file project recording for it. <laughs> really bad. Nice. Yeah. But the um but yeah, we played that, went on to Command and Conquer, and then like the second we could dial up and like play against each other, like we lived two houses apart. <laughs> the second we could mm. do that. <laughs> and I was kinda the same way as what Wicker was saying where where Wickerwalk is saying is is um most of the games i played on the pc were demo discs from pc gamer they were all mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. at first they were the little you know three and quarter inch floppies or three and a half inch floppies and then um then later they were cds and so i had kind of the same experience like i'd see the first level or like the first 10 minutes of a game or like the intro movie and think it's really cool and then not be able to get it because we didn't have a whole lot of money in my household either growing up we got a little bit better when i hit in my teens like late teens yeah, um, it was it was easier. Like I could convince my parents to buy me a magazine that had a disc on the front, mm-hmm. but convince them to give me like thirty, um, thirty forty pounds for a for a game um, was just kind of out of the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a whole different league, right? When with magazines, usually they are substitute goods. They they are meant for when you can't afford the real good. It's like car magazines. Mm-hmm. They are accessible. You can't buy the cars, all the cars. I mean. But but you can buy the magazine, and they work perfectly good, well for that. And obviously, it's something that a lot of us can relate to, uh, because that's the way that we that we consume this, right? You you saw each page and, and saw each game that you couldn't play, and knew everything about it, or or the demos, right? I, I remember that I played a Rebel Assault demo for for PC a lot. Yeah, no, I like I can relate, and and I I don't know how many games I like probably know more just from the reviews i've read like like or you know you might follow a game from uh like like rumor through preview article in a magazine to review in the magazine you never played it but you know a lot about it because you've read all those articles over the years on on how the game got made and and where it ended up yeah you you know which soundboards it it supports and resolutions (laughs) yeah 
how many colors it has. But it's, a, it's a very interesting era because it was uh, not pre-internet, but we didn't have mass access to it, right? Yeah, I didn't, like when did I get internet access? I think I must have been um, probably 16 or so when I first got dial-up internet access. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, I, I do remember when I went to university, like I picked my university based mm-hmm. on the fact that their like on-campus housing had um, uh, like Ethernet connections in it. So mm-hmm. I went from like dial-up access to like 10 megabit internet access um, in the space of two years, which was pretty life-changing and um, doesn't really give you a good opportunity to get an education when you're like all of a sudden put into an ultimate LAN party as your uh, yeah. as your campus accommodation. And and you used to play FPS in in that uh, yeah in we that land, we just basically played um, I think at least for the first semester we just played Quake World um, constantly um, because it was, there was always someone running a server somewhere um, there was always someone to play I think we eventually migrated to uh, Counter Strike at some point but it was you know when you had a bunch of kids coming to university they all had um, it didn't really matter if you had a low-end or high-end PC. Everything was basically capable of running Quake at that point. Um, mm-hmm. And it just was, was nonstop. That, that was having a very interesting era, uh, especially since it was such a huge change. And uh, it also uh, opened several doors, right? Like to the information, Usenet, and, and, the, and the websites about games and all this technology at the same time. Yeah, like about games and and uh, like programming and all this kind of stuff. Like it was just a wealth of of information that um, I don't think you really have anymore online. Like you have a ton of information online, but as as someone, um, actually, I, I'm 100 percent sure there's much more information online right now. But it, it at the time it mm-hmm. was more focused on um, on your like like geek and nerd interests like was the primary output of the internet at that point in time. I get what you mean, but it's not just that. It's not just that it was it was all connected. There were these web rings and websites that linked to each other and created an uh, a web mm-hmm. of information that was all relatable and you could jump between it. And uh, it was also like free access to all those information, no ads. And besides that, there were no social networks. So you you went to the websites and you had bookmarks and tons of them, and you went and visited them. Yeah. And there were not even search engines, right? There was. Uh, well, we did. We had a uh, Alta Vista. Alta Vista. Uh, I like mm-hmm. to joke about Ask Jeeves, but I don't think anyone really used Ask Jeeves. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like Yahoo it was came up kind of early too. Yeah, like I'm actually which think, one? Sorry, I'm actually thinking back, like Yahoo kind of came up early around. There oh, too. Yahoo! Yeah, it was yeah. it was way before Google. I feel like like a few years. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's, but it it was interesting because you had to submit your website to Alta Vista and to Yahoo, yep. so they could add you into their yellow pages. Right? Oh my gosh! And, I uh, forgot they were called that. Oh man. <laughs> This is, oh yeah, this is bringing back I'm probably worries. dating myself here. <laughs> no, no worries. I was on AOL 3.0, man. That was the first time I was on the internet. So, I mean, I'm a little later than you guys probably, but not by much. <laughs> yeah, I got access to the internet in 94 and I taught in courses about Gopher and FTP. There was no web yet. Yeah, it was very different back then. It was probably 95 for me or something. So it would have been around then, I think. Yeah, it, it was kind of a magical time. <laughs> I like discovered Zofar.net. Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Then. Like, it would before it was called Zofar.net. I thought it had a different name, 
And then rpgamer.com was was legit back in the day. They they covered all of the the RPGs and um they're still around, but they used to be called uh, they used to be like square.com or something like that cuz they were like square fans, you know, <laughs> of SquareSoft. So they had to change it for trademark reasons uh just to be safe and but yeah i've been i had them as my book as my home page until like a couple of years ago <laughs> you were going to say something about uh the internexes back then martin oh sorry <laughs> no no sorry um oh, i don't know what i was gonna say like i think i i jo- i my first time getting on the internet was like 1996 probably 95 um before that I was on like bulletin boards um mm-hmm. and like oh yeah lovely and the uh uh, the like the Fidonet network um, in Europe, which is was pretty still pretty big at the time, um, but I, yeah, like it was I don't know like as a as a kid with a PC, it was just like all of a sudden, and especially as a kid interested in programming, like all of a sudden there was just a wealth of of information yeah. and, and things like like tools I wanted to uh, I would have had to like purchase like on like a year or two ago, like being able to access like open source, like, like compilation tools yeah. and stuff like that. It was just like all of a sudden this entire world getting, had opened up to me. Getting GCC was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like DJ GPP, the, the DOS port of yeah. GCC was. Wow. <laughs> yeah. DJ GPP was amazing. Yeah. And Allegro. I bet you used Allegro. Oh, definitely Allegro for sure. Um, oh, I yeah. can, I can listen to music, um, uh, like mid '90s, like brick pop music, and it will like remind me of you know like like DOS mode, like blitter mm-hmm. blitters I was trying to write at the time for for um for games and stuff on on PC in GJGPP, and uh, it was like I spent a, a lot of summers <laughs> doing that stuff, and it was really like just the internet being able to just access all that information, like John Carmack's plan files, like it was just it was a time of um like you have much more access to programming information now but like at that mm-hmm. time it felt you were much closer to actual like people on the cutting edge of of game development i i fully agree it it felt like a, a different world and you got just uh, you jumped into it and disappeared into it completely yeah yeah so such such good memories <laughs> and <laughs> and was there a time that you ever left gaming um like when i just kind of stopped playing games yeah 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 there was a time, um, probably around like 13 years old, um, when I got interested in music and started playing in a high school band with some friends of mine. Um, and that kind of like, that took me like out of computers and, and out of all these previous interests I had. And mm-hmm. I was just focused on that for like two or three years. Um, and then I started like like drifting back to uh, computers because I, I wanted to write like a multi-track sound recorder for our crappy PC mm. so we could actually start recording some music um, and then that kind of like sucked me back out to out of music and back into computers again and I don't like I like since the age of 17 I think I haven't picked up an, an instrument and <laughs> and played it I've been fully committed to my uh, my first love of, of gaming and computers that's awesome and what about you Kevin um, I don't know if I ever took any substantial time off. I think, um, when I first started, like my first attempt at like having some kind of a real job, <laughs> mm. um, I was doing training to manage the restaurant and it was like a four month long process. It's a really weird, serious kind of thing for some reason. And during that time I took like a couple months off from games just to kind of hunker down and focus on it. 
But other than that, it's just been pretty much every day <laughs> thinking about it since before I can remember. <laughs> I don't know. Now, uh, to, to start turning this into, into a bit into whatever, uh, all the themes and all the work that you've done, because uh, we, we haven't even touched on that. But uh, how did you find about mystery, um, Kevin? Talking to me? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I am trying to remember the specifics. It's kind of difficult. Um, I had known about the analog consoles for a long time, um, for a little bit, and I kind of generally knew that an FPGA was. I didn't know about Mist, and then somehow I found, I think it was uh, Smoke Monster, found his Discord, you know, got in there with the Patreon and everything, and just kind of got involved. Got into the Mr. FPGA forums, and then, like, I already had, I had a D10 Nano before I got into the Mr. FPGA forums, I think, because I had just bought it around, right after the the Sega CD core came out. So yeah, I got into mm -hmm. it, I think that was, t like, 2019 or something right <laughs> like november 2019 probably um so i got it kind of a while ago and things started to kind of snowball but i i had already been doing it support in my next career and doing it in general i'm very much a generalist and the second people had issues i'm like well is, is that something i could help with and i just started helping people so that's kind of my first bit of contributing to the scene in my own little way was just kind of going into chat and just, Hey, you know, that doesn't work. Let's figure it out, you know, or you need some information about that. Let's go figure it out. And I, I still do that somewhat. I think I've slowed down on a little bit since my new things, but I try to help people out. Um, there's, it, I, I kind of have a thing where I get, um, into a new thing every few months <laughs> and then I just kind of forget what I was doing and try another new thing. And within the Mr sphere it's been like okay i've i've been really able to focus on it and stay with it and it's a little different than previously where i'd have like little fads to get into <laughs> so um and then it, it has it has focused you right yeah it's absolutely focused me um in an interesting way um and then yeah i started noticing that this was my first contribution on gib um it's kind of it's kind of goofy and silly, but um, basically I noticed like a ton of the readmes were just in text form, and so I was like, well, I'll just switch them over to Markdown, you know, <laughs> just make them look nicer, mm -hmm. make them more presentable. So I started doing it, and then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm just gonna do like 30 of the arcade cores, and I just like had all my three monitors set up, and I was just slamming through them and submitted a bunch of pull requests and probably annoyed the hell out of Sorglig because <laughs> I was spamming <laughs> pull requests at him, um, but basically i just want to make things look nice and then you know i started editing editing the github wiki started to try and document things and i think it was around the time that i started doing the readmes that the discord started to take off and that's when i'm like in the help channel constantly at some point <laughs> you know just just really trying to help people get into it more um right around that time i'm learning soldering um trying to make my own like little mr boards i kind of failed on a couple of them because it's a little advanced some of them are a little difficult to solder um, mm -hmm. i mean it was just kind of all in a big wave it's hard to isolate and then finally um well the beginning of me learning how to program i i know nothing i'm like the opposite of i'm like the opposite of martin over here martin has a ton of experience in programming and i hadn't written a lick of code to like couple years ago 
um, kind of a late bloomer. <laughs> I don't know how much I'm blooming though, but the, um, <laughs> but basically the, the, um, the Genesis core, I noticed that the way it handled the regions was incorrect and I just knew something was wrong about it. And, um, so I went researching and I hadn't really ever looked into stuff like that before that deeply. I've been a, a user of emulators since like a user. It sounds like a drug. I mean, it kind of is right. But you know, I've been using emulators since like 1996 or so, 1997. Mm-hmm. And so I never really looked into like how headers work or like what goes into that kind of detection. And all I did was find the information kind of, and I kind of obsessed with it and found this technical document from Sega that was on this random site somewhere about how they all of a sudden changed the way that it detects um, what region it is in like 1994 <laughs> and, mm-hmm. or changes that, I mean, they didn't detect it on Genesis sort of, but you know what I mean, whatever, don't have to go into it. Um, so the, the first like major contribution was me like trying to get that going and, uh, uh, uh uh, Kytrinx, uh, Raisha, she, um, she kind of like basically guided me along and said, this is how you write, you know, this code like this. And, um, it was, it was really scary and overwhelming. I kind of modified what she did. It, it matched the pattern kind of thing. So I could like repeat the pattern and, and try it out. Okay. So if this letter shows up, then this it's, it's looking at a specific offset and then um, I submitted it and Sorg is like, I'll rewrite it better. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, Oh, it kind of hurt. But then I saw how you wrote it and I was just amazed. I was like, wow. He, okay. he took like 20 lines and turned them into one. It was just ridiculous. I'd never would have, it made me really want to learn more and get better at it. That experience. So, I mean, I slowly, I, I don't have a lot of self-confidence, so I, um, I slowly was just like reading code and like afraid to touch anything or do anything. And <laughs> like, but yeah, I mean, that was the start of it at least. Um, and then the documentation side is the newest one, which maybe you want to go into that more as a separate thing. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we'll uh, dive into that deeper because documentation is really important and it's a subject that we'll, we'll take on uh, fully in a, in a few minutes. I don't know if a few minutes, but later in, in today's uh, program. And uh, what about you, uh, Martin? How how did you get into mystery? How did you get to know it? I'm I'm trying to remember. I can't remember what actually like like clued me onto the fact that it existed. Um, I I know I worked with a guy who had a uh, had a mist because he was running uh, his Amiga on it. Um, mm. But then like in like I, I looked it up before this talk just to see like when did I actually buy this thing? And it was like mid 2019. I bought a DE10. Um, and, uh, like an IO board. Um, and I can remember trying it, like, like trying it out. I mean, like, oh, this is cool. Um, but you know, it was like a, a, um, it was like just a tangle of like wires on my desk, like a, just a a naked, Mm -hmm. a naked sandwich with a USB hub hanging off it and a a keyboard on the ground. because there's no more room on the desk for it. And I was like, well, this is nice, but (laughs) I I felt like it was going to go the way of every other time I've, um, like like done like an emulation setup where like you know you you get the thing all set up you gather all your roms together and then you sit down you like cycle through 50 games and then never come back to it again which has happened to me mm-hmm. definitely on when do, doing like pc emulation setups um i think before mister like the 
only time I really had like a kind of daily driver, like like retro emulation setup was on the um, uh, the original Xbox One. Because um, mm-hmm. I just had one in my office at work, and, and me and a friend of mine would play uh, uh, Street Hoops on the Neo Geo every day. <laughs> um, and uh, so, like, I, I kind of just like put it back in a box and didn't really uh, think about it again for a few months. Uh, and then, like, lockdowns happened, and I was like, you know, if I had a case for this thing, um, I might actually, like, you know, use it more. Like, if it was like an actual, like, if it felt more like an appliance that I could just put down mm-hmm. it and plug in like plug in power plug in hdmi and, and go um so i decided to try to make a like an, an atari st inspired uh wedge case um which you know at I'd, I'd done some 3d printing at the time but everything i'd done had really just been you know like like boxes and right angles and the idea of you know making something that kind of looked like something else and had you know weird angles and had to incorporate a bunch of like other bits of hardware and, and mount them correctly was um, pretty daunting. Um, but I like, I gosh, I, I do have a picture of all of the prints. I, I shared, well, I shared the, the photos that you have. Yeah. The w- one thing I like about, I don't know if this photo is on here. I'll, I'll put it in the, the stage chat. But one thing I like about 3D printing is just, um, you know, I, I wish I was better with my hands. Like, I wish I could, <laughs> um, you know, like uh, craft things and I wish I had the patience to like measure things correctly. And one thing I love about 3d printing is that you can be like lazy to a certain extent and, you know, make a super complex design, uh, print it out, realize that like you're, you know, half an inch off somewhere and then just modify it and do it again. It's not like you've spent like six hours, like carving a piece of wood or carefully bending a piece of steel. Mm. Um, so I don't know how many rolls of filament I went through, uh, building, building the case uh but it was certainly a lot like i just had a box of like half printed cases from like mistakes i'd made or like oh i should have measured whether this part's high enough um but yeah like like it it all came together in the end and i have this like i still use it as my like daily driver uh mister setup is like this uh this little wedge case with a keyboard and usb hub and stuff in it um and like probably a week after it was done i, I brought it on a family vacation where we just went to a uh like a cottage for a week um with a with my brother-in-law and we, i don't know how many hours of games we played on that thing but it was just like it kind of sold me on the fact that like not only is it uh like is it great to have it in like a a, a case that you you're not scared of someone like tripping over a cable or spilling something mm-hmm. on it um but just the like the kind of like ease of use and simplicity like no one was you know complaining that a game didn't work or it felt weird it was just like people were just playing the consoles that they love to play and uh, having the keyboard integrated is a very interesting idea. Yeah, it's um, you know, I, no, it was natural because you chose that form factor, but but it's not common. It's what I mean. Yeah, like it, it felt to me like a like, I think you a keyboard is basically required at least for like initial setup. Like you probably you're gonna have a hard time, I think, in a lot of cases doing a full setup without um without at least being able to plug a keyboard in once or twice. Um, I wish that wasn't the case. Um. But you know, even just for like controller mapping and stuff, you kind of either need to have access to the uh, to the I/O board buttons or or a keyboard. Um, but I also had this fantasy of like becoming like a an ST and doing like ST or Amiga development or something on it. So I wanted to have a uh, a proper case. Um, and I think it was after that I joined the the Discord, and I was just like I was just continually surprised that I kept using the system. Like I was expecting it to gather dust somewhere eventually. Um, but I just, you know, 
kept playing games and and kept uh, um, like being involved in the community and the Discord. The Discord is amazing. I wish I, I spent more time like I did a, a couple of years ago, but it's uh, it, it's such a great community. It really is. I don't know. Like it's it's probably the Discord I'm in the most these days. I don't know why. Maybe I shouldn't <laughs> be in it as much, but it's uh, uh, I don't know. It just seems like a very fun and, and welcoming community that sometimes also talks about video games and Mister. I agree. I, I'm all, I'm mainly a lurker, but I, I like it very much. Yeah. And uh, so you uh, up to this day, do you still use it to play? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's right here next to me right now. The um, I have a I have one of uh, pork chops uh, like. Uh, aluminum cases for my development mister, mm -hmm. and then the one I play most of my games on is still in my in my wedge case. That's really nice. And, and what do you play usually? What have I played recently? Um, I have been playing uh, Chrono Trigger um, mm. on the uh, recently, and then I'm all so there. Japanese RPG, you can be spared. Yes, awesome. I know. Yeah, you're allowed to continue talking <laughs> in this conversation right now. Um, accepted by the masses. It's okay. yeah. But I've also just been cycling through the PlayStation catalog too, and just seeing oh. what on there, like, do I remember, or is something I would still want to uh, want to play? Did you? It didn't sound like you engaged much with it because you were into PC gaming mainly. Did you get into PlayStation back in the day? Yeah, we had um, we had a PlayStation. A, a roommate of mine had a PlayStation that we we played, um, and I can remember play like. You know those great kind of like group gaming experiences where someone just gets through a level and someone else then plays the next level and it's just kind of like going on for days mm -hmm. where you play through. Like I remember mm -hmm. we finished um, Crash Bandicoot was like a big one in the house. Um, uh, Parappa the Rapper um, and you know Metal Gear Solid, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, like like PlayStation, I think is very. Uh, it it has a bigger I think it has a bigger impact on maybe maybe people do give it enough credit but like the I think PlayStation made it acceptable for like a twenty year old to have a video game console in the middle of their house like it was I don't know how it was in in the U S but I remember in um you know in in the U K and in Ireland like like Wipeout had you know the same music that people were listening to uh. On CD, like that was the kind of like cool house music that was in Wipeout. Like it was, uh, it was something people wanted to play, and it like it, it got to the point where it wasn't just a kids thing anymore. It was like, hey, this is a young adult thing that you can have a console and you can play it, and it, it's it's a cool thing to do. Well, how, no, you agree. How was it in Mexico, Artemio? Because I can speak on the U.S., but was it like that growing up? Where, because yeah, uh, I'm just curious because I've never heard from you on that. <laughs> well, it it. Obviously, we have the U.S. market uh, as the huge influence, so everything we got was mainly from the U.S. There was, of course, a lot of piracy, and uh, because they they brought like a bunch of bootlegs from China, and it was really really hard to get uh, original games. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. aware of how the market was down there, but yeah, yeah, there was no official distribution, uh... so you went to uh, like a I don't know, a local flea market, and they sold, uh, sometimes they sold original games, like used or, or sometimes new, if you were lucky, hmm. or a bazaar. But uh, usually they just sold uh, piracy, and obviously Super Nintendo and all that stuff was uh, was still big at the time of PlayStation, because the economy had been hit really hard in 94 here in Mexico, so uh, we kind of lagged, because uh, prices went up like three times. 
Oh, wow. Well, that's a, that's yeah. kind of something I was wondering about now that Martin brought it up. And then in the U.S., it's kind of like you said, Martin, it's, it was similar to what you grew up with where, you know, a lot of kids had the consoles, but like you were still like a nerd or a dork, you know, if you, <laughs> if you were really into it. And you if, if you played anything more than like Super Mario Brothers, you know, you were, you were kind of a dork <laughs> and it's like, I, I, I was already, it, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. I was already embraced. I yep. had already embraced it and, and all my, my, my colleagues in the, in the university were all dorks and geeks. So yep. And then the PlayStation mainstreamed it really. It feels like yeah. the PlayStation just, just like we Final Fantasy seven. Oh yeah. Right. Final Fantasy seven mainstreamed the, the games that like, I mean, my best friend, literally my brother met his older sister and, and said, Oh, you know, they have a, they have a kid over there. You know, her, her, uh, her little, her little brother plays the same games you do. <laughs> and that's how I mm. met him. And it was just from there on, from third grade on, we connected really well. And it's cause it was incredibly rare to find anybody else that played JRPGs. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah you yeah. didn't find them anywhere. And so, yeah, like, as soon as Final Fantasy VII came out, it became cool to play those kind of games, but also it became cool to just play games, you know, for a hangout kind of thing. I mean, the arcades always kind of had that, but not quite, you know, to the same degree for me growing up, at least. So, yeah, I had the similar experience to what Waka's saying, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just wasn't cool enough to play Final Fantasy VII, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was interesting. I, I mean, all my friends were into games because. Obviously, you you arrive into engineer uh, computer engineer car- career, and at least I don't know ten percent were there because of games. The other ninety percent were there for other reasons, right? But uh, the the weird ones gathered together for for gaming and the internet and uh, online uh, multi multi user dungeons and that kind of thing. But with Final Fantasy VII, it, it was like in an auditorium at the school. People, we we. We gathered to play Final Fantasy VII at night. Oh wow, that's cool. <laughs> so, so will it yeah. will it hold up if I go play Final Fantasy VII on on the PSX Core? Like, personally, mm. yes, I think it holds. Yeah, up. I think so. I mean, if you can if you can withstand playing, you know, like for the first time, some Super Nintendo games and stuff, yeah, it'll hold up. I, you know, the games that don't hold up on PlayStation are the ones where they tried to make like real textures on them. Those kind of I still it, like them because I got nostalgia, but some of them are like, they try to be real realistic. FF7 just has those like garage shading, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it actually makes it look better. <laughs> I don't know why, but. <laughs> like the PlayStation, like Saturn um, and 64, like they're, they're kind of at that weird um, mm-hmm. point in time. Like, like the games, they can, they can look either amazing still, or they can look terrible. And a, a lot of it just comes down to, to art direction. Like, yes. you know, you could, you could make a nice 2D game. Almost anyone could churn out a nice looking 2D game. And nowadays anyone can churn out a nice looking 3D game, but like to kind of utilize the hardware at the time and make it still look pleasing, like you really needed very strong kind of like art vision, art direction to uh to make it hold up. Yeah, the big advantage I think with um Squaresoft in general, how they handled the JRPGs back then is they the thing that makes the, in my opinion, the PlayStation hold up more than the PS2 for JRPGs, aside from, in my opinion, PS2 games kind of not being as good in that, but that, whatever, I'm not going to go too into that. <laughs> I'm going to like alienate half the chat right now. 
Um, yeah, yeah. You already alienated yeah, me. Here we go. <laughs> 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 no, but anyways, but either way, the the PlayStation, um, they did these pre-rendered backgrounds, and they were very like cinematically. They they were like cinematography angles that they were doing that were kind of like things that you could see were inspired by like clockwork orange and stuff like that, like all these great movies. And so back then, you know, you couldn't have the graphics really be that good for the backgrounds and they would position them in such a unique way. Like in Final Fantasy eight, there's this, I won't spoil it too much, but there's a scene where you're upside down, um, where you're walking upside down because you're in space. (laughs) And so like, there's things like that where they did with the pre-rendered backdrops that I think really it helps it. There's like an appreciation I think people can have for it today still because the like there is an artistic vision really showing through, but that's still like there's a just PlayStation has such a huge library. There's probably also a ton of games that just don't have that artistic vision. To be fair, you know, <laughs> there's there's also this. another factor. The uh, I believe CRT held a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. The dithering on PlayStation is legendary. Um, it's definitely a thing of legends. <laughs> And uh, speaking of which, do you use your mistress in uh, HDMI or CRTs, Kevin? I primarily do HDMI. I have a CRT, so I can, I, I basically have it in a guest room. Um, we have like a kind of small house, but we have extra rooms because we don't have kids or anything. And um, we have a guest room and I set it up as like a retro room. So I have like a record player in there and stuff. And so I have a CRT in there and I've rarely gone in and played on it. And I do enjoy it, but my CRT, I need to fix it but primarily i play on on now an lg g1 downstairs which is just the i mean i've never had a nice tv in my life until now (laughs) it just blows me away like i feel very privileged to have such a thing like that um i primarily play that or i'm upstairs on my cheap acer gaming monitor with the second mister i have which like waka i have like a development mister and like a real gaming one but yeah i prefer the hdmi um, but there is something to be said. I mean, I, I do really like the CRT output, how it handles dithering hundred percent. Like it, yeah, I've gotten used to dithering cause I got a scaler and I played on a PlayStation that I modded on the RetroTink five uh, X pro. And so I kind of got to the point where it didn't bother me to see the dithering anymore, mm-hmm. but it's still there, you know, like it, it clearly, they were assuming it was going to kind of, you know, blend in and make it look like there were more colors than there actually were. It's pretty clear that's what they were trying to do to me personally, but that's a spicy topic, I think. <laughs> There's a lot to say there, and I, I bet that Martin has a lot to say in this. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, I'm almost exclusively um, HDMI. Like The only CRT setup I have is the uh, my iMac case, but I don't even know how that really compares to like a 15 kilohertz uh, CRT, but it's, I don't know, it, it's probably been 20 years since I looked at something on a CRT. Like, I don't remember things like scan lines because I have that, you know, like rose tinted glasses memory of what games looked like. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm almost ex- like pretty much HDMI uh, all the way. Like, th- for me, that's one of the big selling points of, of, of Mr. is like the, the low latency HDMI output. Um, I'm, I'm happy to. Jeez, with the Final Fantasy stuff on this now, I'm, I'm going to get definitely kicked out. But I'm, I'm happy to not have CRTs in my life. <laughs> I understand. They're bulky. They need capacitor changes. 
and so you need geometry adjustments. I will say that whenever I see a yard sale sign, I usually detour and just drive by slowly just in case there's like a, you know, someone was dumb enough to put a CRT out in their yard sale and not uh, not put it on. So you're curious. Yeah. yeah. You might find one of those hidden gem ones that are, uh, you know, like you might see the, the what is it, F, FVM310 or whatever, the one with the... <laughs> It's like one well, yeah. of the better Trinons, Trinons FV310, I think. Yeah. I, I think I've told this this story on the Discord, but like um uh in when I started, like I worked on like PlayStation 2 and GameCube games back in the day. Um and we all just had like, you know, like like little 14-inch like consumer CRTs on our desks. Like that's that's what we used. But um we did have a bunch of like high-end uh like multi-sync uh PVMs. I didn't even know they were called PVMs at the time. I think PVMs is a term I've just picked up in the last uh, two years mm-hmm. or so. Um, but they were like, it, it was bad news if you had one of those things. Because if you had one of those things on your desk, it meant you were stuck dealing with the um, like the European and like other region issues. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. translated text overflowing in a box or something like that. Or, you know, PAL mode not looking correct in this situation. So for years, like having... The really nice PVM on your desk was a bad sign. I meant you the all the sucky bugs you had to fix. Um, and uh, like we like we sold those things. We used to have like company yard sales, and we sold all those things for probably like twenty bucks a piece. Um, and I, I just think now, if I could have picked up at least one or two of those things and held on to them, I'd be at least two hundred dollars more uh, in my pocket than I have right now. Well, they might be yeah, five or six hundred sure. now, depending yeah. on what they had. <laughs> Yeah, things gone crazy. Uh, PVMs, uh, as you mentioned, got into into the mainstream like ten years ago, but really, really, really took off with the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people uh, at home with nothing better to do than you know, you know, try and relive their glory days, <laughs> right? Yeah, but uh, I, I I understand. Well, I, I'm a big CRT guy. For I've been for at least ten years now. I left it for four years from 2006 to 2010 i switched to to lcd but then i went back <laughs> yeah um you've got a so mr for sure <laughs> uh, not not really i have like uh i have like eight pbms probably but they I, they are not a, a setup they are spread around the house and around the the um, the office lab Right, they're 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 for testing. I I never play. <laughs> yeah, no, I know the feeling. Since I've started to do more stuff in Mister, it's like I think I played thirty minutes of a game yesterday, like the game of the month, Crystalis. I'm I'm like playing. I played like a couple hours. <laughs> I don't think they're really nice. I have a a bunch of uh, a couple of five inches and and eight inch PBMs that are mainly for uh, uh, arcade PCB repairs or, or testing the, the suite and that kind of thing. Not really for playing. I, I, but, uh, I, I was going to trash hmm? uncle's comment there. No games, only two forty P test suite. Yeah. 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 There you go. That, that kind <laughs> of is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's yeah, but what, it, it, it was, I, I went into upscalers like in 2007 because I switched to the LCD and saw my Genesis connected to the, to the LCD and it looked terrible. So I imported an XRGB2 and started using that. And that's what drove me to the suite and all this crazy thing that got me... When I, when I started coding the PAL versions, that's when I got my first PBM because I couldn't display PAL, right? And my next question was uh, regarding that. 
so so you were dealing with different video formats and uh, there's been discussion regarding uh intentions intentionality about aspect ratios uh pixel aspect ratios i don't know if you want to go too deep into that martin you have something to say about that like you know my experience is in like the ps2 era so like era. I, mm-hmm. a lot of things were a little more standardized um by that point on the aspect ratio front um and uh you know we were starting to think about more around like like color spaces and stuff like that but but for sure it was um you know like we had like almost everyone just had some like really bog standard consumer television on their desk Mm -hmm. uh and usually the smaller the better because you you didn't want to take up too much room um especially when you had like you know your big bulky dual crt pc setup too so like you you limited space on your desk for any more displays um but you know it was a uh like i don't know if i ever actually saw like an artist on our games using like a special monitor um other than their their pc monitors um Mm -hmm. so it was like a lot of and we we even at the time we did a poor job of just like calibrating displays like i would say um there's a much better understanding in the industry now in the last 10 years over like you know correctly calibrating displays and and targeting stuff but there was a lot of very just kind of dismissive stuff about it's going to look different on every tv you show it on anyways um so why bother calibrating to to one single display uh was kind of the attitude uh we had at the time um and you know even even today with like you know high-end tvs like most developers are still working on kind of mm-hmm. like bog standard um lcd screens like often the you know a cheaper a cheap consumer one and you might have uh like your artists who are very focused on on lighting and stuff like that might have their very high-end um mastering displays that they they use for things but even you know now they even go to, to greater lengths like they're they're not just concerned about what their display looks like but they need to ensure that their like work environment uh is full of like neutral mm-hmm. gray colors so they're not like looking at a bright white wall or something that's then screwing up their vision when they're trying to to tune in uh lighting and color settings on their on their monitor yeah and the illumination the same area right yeah also yeah yeah it's really rough uh, i i can imagine people that did get into calibration uh back then and uh then when it was released nobody used it in the, <laughs> the proper way right yeah it would have been frustrating yeah like but uh f- yeah, sorry. I just like as much as we, um, you know, I think as much as we complain about like you know displays still being miscalibrated and stuff these days, like it's mm-hmm. just like the the color reproduction on even the cheapest TV you buy nowadays is just light years ahead of what you like yeah. the accuracy you would get on a CRT um, back in the day. Not that the CRT wasn't capable of doing it, just the chances of it actually being configured correctly to uh, display correctly was was next to zero. Oh yeah, yeah. Also an LCD. So also now. an LCD. Uh, LCD has gotten way better in the last fourteen years, and all, all other technologies. Colors were red pushed mm-hmm. really hard yeah. when LCD started. Yeah, yeah, they, oh, yeah. They could be they could be pretty bad to look at. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you can still get a pretty bad deal, but but you can set up any any current as you said any current LCD. You can kind of balance it decently. It's, it's not as hard as it was. And uh, you mentioned uh, iMaxter uh, just uh, a few minutes ago. What can you tell us about that? Um, that started, I don't know why I started that project. Probably lockdown, 
again, I think is a good excuse for uh, for why I started that. But it was, um, I don't know, I think we were just talking on the Discord about like wacky cases you could make. And then I had this idea of like, what if you could put a Mr. inside of an iMac? And I don't have any nostalgia for for iMacs. Like I never owned an Apple until um, until I got a uh, like a, like an Apple laptop at some point in the past. Um, but I do remember like, you know, again, kind of like, like PlayStation, um, you know, iMac made it possible to have a PC in, in the living room in your house. So it was definitely, I think it's a definitely a big, uh, part of, of the history of computing. Um, but I never owned one. And then I was like, maybe you could, you know, maybe you could fit a, a Mr. in the bottom there. And I saw some projects where people were putting Raspberry Pis in there. So I found one on, um, Goodwill, I think, for a pretty good price and in pretty good condition. And I bought it and was like, you know, maybe I'll see what this is is like. And then I opened it up and just realized like what a like mess I'd set myself up for, um, <laughs> because it was just much more, you know, in in my like again, I'm I'm bad at planning ahead for things. So like in my mind, it was like I'd open this thing up, I'd like disconnect the stuff that was in there, and I'd plug a mister in, and it would just kind of, you know work and then i was you know i realized like well i have to build a sound amplifier because it's got because when you when you take out the main board the main board does everything inside the imac so like um and i was lucky that there was some other projects that had at least had some circuits for like doing basic like power management and stuff like that inside there and someone had decoded the uh the signals needed to initialize the monitor and the vga signals and stuff like that so it was it was just it it, I thought it would be like a weekend project and it ended up taking, I think about four months. Um, and <laughs> in the process, I, you know, I'd never designed a circuit board before. I'd never done anything at all with analog electronics. Um, I ended up like designing and printing like my own kind of control board with an audio amplifier on it. Um, I had never done any like surface mount soldering. And I ended up, um, I like, I decided I didn't want to use some off the shelf USB hub and try to like fit it into the case. So I, I, design my own uh usb hub and and printed that and did like surface mount soldering which i'd never done before um and that's like a i thought that was really cool like i'd, I'd made a usb hub but it's impossible to get your family or friends interested in <laughs> something as mundane as look i made a usb hub that thing you can buy for like five dollars on amazon i made one uh no one cares um <laughs> but i cared a lot and it was also one of those i, I don't know if anyone else experiences this but like you know, it, it took a lot of kind of like, I kind of like hyped myself up to to make this thing because I had the circuit boards, I had all the parts, I'd never done surface mount soldering before. And I was like, if this doesn't work, um, I'll probably just put it in a box and never come back to it. Like, I'll just be like, <laughs> I, I failed. I'll never be able to do this. And I gave up. And the opposite happened. Like, I, I set, I like in like 30 minutes, I'd done all the soldering. Uh, and I hooked it up to a Raspberry Pi, and it detected it, and it all worked perfectly. And then I, I just, I walked away from the project for a week because I was like, I'm never going to be able to, I'm never going to be able to repeat that. Like it's, it was yeah, a fluke, yeah, yeah. and I'm going to do it again, and it will fail. And I'd be like, okay, I, I, it was just a fluke. I can never do it. Um, but I, yeah, like that, it all kind of worked out. It all came together. I learned um, a ton. Like I had to, um, you know, I had to write software for the control board. I had to. You know, I learned that like, hey, it's much better to like actually build proper connectors instead of using like screw terminals, so I could easily take this thing apart and put it back together. Um, and it all just kind of came together. I I love it. Like, it's just this like 
little uh, like iMac mystery that's in my garage right now. And I just press a button and I can play some Street Fighter on it or something. Um, mm -hmm. The monitor's got weird resolutions. It doesn't really sync to a whole different, a <laughs> uh, whole lot of um, different uh, vertical and horizontal sync. So I had to kind of pick some wacky video modes for it. But mm -hmm. um, it's it's a treat. I'm excited when I we're moving house in a, in a month or so, and I'm excited to actually have a place to put it when we get there. That's that's a really cool story. And yes, it's uh, it's your own world, right? Because it's it's difficult to to get other people excited. I mean, in the immediate family, but obviously, friends and and people in the Discord are a different deal. Yeah, hopefully, like you know, it's like you know, the USB hub is just one example. Like when you when you drag your sign on, you're like, look, it's making noise. Like there's a thousand things in the house that make noise. Who cares that this thing is making noise? Um, uh, I I could relate a lot <laughs> to what you just said about. Uh, Getting away from the thing that you just made, I I I don't know. I had a bug like uh, a week ago, and uh, when I figured it out, I didn't want to test it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I fixed it and left it like that, and just sat down and relaxed and listened to some music and went outside and did some other thing. I I didn't want to test it. Yeah, I knew it was right, but I I couldn't. <laughs> I I felt kind of the same way like were you worried it wouldn't be right and then you'd be lost or was it just you were just exhausted from it i don't think it was either of them it was it was that and i didn't figure out before and i'm so sure that's it <laughs> and i spent like i don't know three hours I, I made it in a live stream i i i was doing a live stream coding something for the 240p test suite on the sega cd and I went like into that detour, chasing a bug like for two hours. I don't know how I don't know how you do that. I I could not live stream um, myself doing it. Doing it was anything. the first. Uh, it was the first time I did it, and I I can't do it either. <laughs> I spend the time talking with people, uh, and, and it's fun. But I didn't uh, I didn't advance. It it was to force myself into working basically. I see. But uh, the thing is that. I chased a bug that didn't exist. That's the big issue. It just wasn't really the, a bug? Yeah. It was because I was in a stream. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> well, now I, don't need to, now I don't need to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's in Spanish, but sorry. Yeah. Uh, that, that's basically, I, I was chasing a bug about the Genesis didn't refresh in one frame, whatever I was... Uh, put into VRAM and it wasn't really there it was, I was using uh, an open source can converter because I swapped it and my, my, my video card wasn't syncing when I changed resolutions on the fly from the Genesis between 320 and 256 and it dropped frames on the stream but it was really fine yeah, yeah, yeah it didn't exist <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> when I tested on a CRT, nothing bad happened. But on the capture card and on the scaler and on the HDMI, there was a bug, but it wasn't a bug. Anyway. <laughs> is, is that the end of your live streaming <laughs> <Yeah>. career? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I, I, maybe not a, uh, coding, but I, I do some other things. <laughs> no. But coding is, is really hard. I, I really admire people that do that. Yeah, yeah, I admire I, people that do that too. I I have been just copy pasting ninety percent of what I do and comparing. So 
it's amazing the people that actually come up with new code to me like you are Timmy and Martin you guys really <laughs> it's amazing to see it no but people that that do code live and are solving things i i can like change the interface right but concentrate and do something deep no and 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 make people watch my mess while i do it no no way it was i even struggled for the longest time just submitting pull requests yeah. on on github yeah. because you know i'd spent probably 20 years just kind of like coding in in companies without like pub Agreed. public scrutiny and then the idea that like you know everyone on the internet could see the changes i was making like i, I don't mind mm -hmm. that they could see my code but like they would see my mistakes and they would see the uh like you know my typos and all these kind of things i'm doing so like doing it like live streaming just i i can't even um imagine plus i'd just be all tabbing away to check twitter every every five minutes while i'm coding anyway so <laughs> make for a weird stream no, no. I completely understand you and I follow you and uh, I have the same uh, fears and, and I believe that's important for people that are in the mystery community. How, how has your attitude changed to, to, towards those comments? And, and uh, I, I still like keep my cards closed and only commit when I have everything fixed as far as I know, but h how do you manage that? Um, I have, I think I've, I've, you know, loosened up a little bit for lack mm -hmm. of a better word like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for me a lot of the work i do on like mr and I, you know i haven't done a ton of work but like a lot of the um like experimentation and all these other things i do it's it's in a lot of cases just kind of stress relief and a change of pace from uh from work life so mm -hmm. it's i don't in a lot of cases i don't care if um something i'm working on ever ends up going going live or getting accepted um because for me it's it's often a, a big just kind of learning experience and if something good comes out of it great if something uh like doesn't come out of it or the change gets rejected i'm kind of okay with that too like i don't want to um i don't want to submit something to to really to any project that the kind of the the maintainers of that project don't want because then it kind of I'm either like like forcing some kind of maintenance on somebody or you know I become the the sole owner of of some feature I've developed. So like in a lot of ways I just want if it's if it's acceptable to the maintainers great then we're kind of like we're we're teaming up and agreeing to support it um long term. If they don't want it then I don't really want that responsibility on my shoulders either. Hmm. Sounds like a, a very uh mature way of of dealing with it and and that's good. <laughs> My day job is often telling people no, so I'm I'm more than happy to be in a situation where someone's <laughs> telling me no. <laughs> yeah, I can I completely imagine. And uh, we, we're talking about uh, iMaxter, but uh, you have the the Mr. Barcade, Birdie Bro. Yeah. So um, about that, basically at at work, um, we got into 3D printing and and generally speaking, additive manufacturing. And I kind of wanted to show the people there. I want to do some 3D printing evangelism at work, basically. Um, we're, a, we're a plastics injection molder. And, you know, in that industry, you kind of have to have 3D printers as well, as well for all sorts of reasons. So we were like, hey, we need to get people into this that aren't just the engineers. Um, maybe it'll act as an internal recruiting tool or something like that, right? It'll grow the culture. And so this was my way to just kind of, how extreme can you get? How big of a build? You know, because this is a Prusa 
i3 and pretty much one of the components like i had to reduce i had to like just barely fit it on there changing settings just to get it right and uh so i kind of wanted to yeah <laughs> i kind of wanted to I, I call it 3d printing evangelism i wanted to show people what they could get done and yeah it it ended up costing about twice as much as I thought it would by the end of it because <laughs> I threw a mister in there. I was originally going to do a Raspberry Pi, even though I already had a mister. I was like, eh, I'll do a third Raspberry Pi. Then I was like, no, no, I can't do that. Then then I'm like, oh, I'll get these cheap you know, buttons and stuff. No, I'll get all Sanwa. Okay, I'll change to all those. I'll, <laughs> I'll get the cheap AliExpress display thing. No, I'll get the Adafruit one because I feel like the AliExpress one's going to suck. You know, Even if they're the same, I'll just still... I got paranoid. So all of a sudden it's like a $450 build and uh, <laughs> probably about that now, not even counting the material, which wasn't too crazy. But then I decided to do it transparent so that people could see the lights flickering on the inside. You know, when you press the buttons, I got uh, Mick Giver's uh, Damon Byte encoder, which is great. The arcade encoder, the, the, the mini, the KTLR mini. And it was uh, one of the last ones he sold. I haven't heard much from him in a while. I hope he's doing okay. Um, but I asked him directly and he's like, oh yeah, I'll put some up for you. And <laughs> so I bought the last one. He, one of the last few he sold, um, and, and everything came together so nicely in that. And so many people were just, wow, you can do that with a 3d printer. And, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, I work <laughs> with a lot of manufacturing's funny. It's like, you'll have people from the age, um, 55 and afterwards in plastics. And then there's this gap all the way down to like 38. <laughs> and so there's there's just a good amount of people that just had no idea what you could do with it even the simple fun hobbyist stuff like that um they had only ever seen it as a tool to like oh we need to hand load this thing in there and it's too expensive to make it out of an aluminum block so we'll do it cheaper with with a 3d printer you know we need a little hand loading device um they never really thought that you could make like an almost consumer product out of it like a, a an a equivalent to a consumer product out of it um so yeah it was a really fun project very difficult i'm not i always put things as work in progress because then i never have to like make them perfect and pristine for other people <laughs> so, I, mm -hmm. so i still consider uh, that a work in progress <laughs> i haven't touched it I, I have to take that route now yeah <laughs> I, I don't want people to be like oh you know i need support for this oh god no i just threw up the files that i referenced um, I didn't design the case. All the credit goes to this other dude on Thingiverse. Don't remember his name, but um, uh, I, I basically combined some of the best components of the ones and the remixes and somehow shoved the D10 Nano in there. It was incredibly tight. Um, I picked up some different components. I the, the harder thing to do is getting the stereo amplifier. I got a different one because they don't sell it anymore got an hdmi audio splitter put in there somehow like it's such a shoved in mess in there it's so tight <laughs> it is not it, made for that many things it's made for like analog audio direct to a little amp you know little speakers it's it's really tight so i kind of empathize with the imaxter build because <laughs> it's like i i was getting to the point where i was telling my wife like i'm gonna have to give up on putting the d10 nano in here i don't think it's gonna fit and I had to like find a weird angle to put it in and move around a few other things. It it was close. It, it always surprised me that like it looks roomy, and then you have like the DE10, and you got like the DC barrel jack sticking into it, and like a HDMI connector or something sticking out the other side, and and USB, and all of a sudden it's like all your space is taken up, and you're like trying to cram <laughs> wires and and cables in there to just get everything to fit. 
Right. And so in there, um, the stereo amplifier is powered by one of the D10 nano headers. So then I had to kind of like learn how to read the schematic and where the things are. This is all like everything I do the last three years has been like, I've never done this before. I'm just going to like throw myself into it and probably blow up my electronics device or something. I don't know. And uh, just like read the manual carefully, take my time. Um, so I and, like, and both of you have the the extra pressure of uh, it being iStatic. Yeah, I really wanted it. I mean, it it could look better in retrospect. I have a little more experience with additive manufacturing now, but I was about three months into 3D printing when I made that. It was a little ambitious. Um, it was about sixty or seventy hours of print time on the i3. Um, most wow. of the components were 0.3 millimeter layer height. It's pretty much a stock i3. Um, it was all hatchbox PLA, I think, is what we were using. And then the control panel was 0.2, just to get the rounded edges a little nicer. But overall, yeah, it was it was a long process. Because, I mean, that base plate, first of all, was just so huge. And then there's all these other components that you have to print out one at a time over and over and over again. Then I had to buy a metric um, a tap drill bit. <laughs> so I could get the metric screws to actually like thread into the mm. side, which is really, you have to be so careful doing that. Um, kind of asked my boss for advice cause he's been, he's been doing 3d printing for like 12 years, like right when consumers could do it. And I was like, well, I do. He's like, just go slow, <laughs> go real slow. <laughs> cause you can melt it real quick. If that, if that drill goes a little too fast. Um, got all that and see so yeah, i've got three misters now and one of them kind of sits in a in a barcade doing nothing but it, it's still fun i occasionally fire it up and um yeah it, it was nice to kind of show that off and it, it actually upper management we threw it into a little uh, powerpoint for them to kind of show off like what the team is doing and they actually all kind of liked it through a video of me playing um uh, neo geo on there samurai showdown too <laughs> so had a little video of me playing on it, you know, giving a thumbs up and it was kind of cool. <laughs> so, and, uh, well, we, we talked about, uh, documentation and about, uh, coding and both of you have, uh, have these topics under your, your belt and, uh, working on them, I mean, and, uh, for example, you, you have several, uh, examples in your GitHub, uh, Martin. And also uh, been working on on a, on a bunch of things, right? Yeah, I've done like it's been. Um, I, th I think like I, I don't know why why Mister brings out my desire to to learn stuff, um, mm. but I, it seems like I'm not the only one either that, mm -hmm. that gets gets Same sucked into that. Um, you know, like, like I I hadn't done any um, like FPGA programming at all. I hadn't really really thought about it. Um, and I don't even know if I wanted to, wanted to think about it. And it, it was when the first thing I wrote was when, um, uh, when Sultan was working on the shadow mask stuff, mm -hmm. um, and he had them hard coded into, uh, just into his module. He had like four or five, uh, different options you could choose. And I was like, oh, we could actually make this, um, you know, user definable, um, which was like kind of a, a simple, step for me to do as someone with software development experience because I, I i could understand completely how uh to do that on the like like the main mister side like how to read in those those files um and you know he'd already done all the actual hard work of of doing the like like shadow mask stuff 
inside, I just needed to change where the data was coming from. So it was, for me, that was a pretty, um, you know, gentle introduction to uh, how to do FPGA development. Um, so you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a that complex of a task. So there's certainly a lot of a lot of edge cases you need to need to learn about, and a lot of like you kind of got to shift your brain around from software to hardware when you're trying to understand what's what's happening. So it it took it took a while, but it was a, a simple, cha- relatively simple change, and uh, eventually that uh, landed in in Maine, and now we have you know thousands of thousands of shadow masks. Um, yeah. Uh, and after that, um, like that was that was that was fun. It was great to contribute and and see people. Uh, like use that stuff. Like it was a, a very fun experience, and I think really um, kind of drew me in even further into the the kind of Discord uh, community. Um, and then uh, after that, I like decided to tackle like this like adaptive scanline stuff. And I didn't really, you know, starting out, I didn't know how that would be done. But again, like like Sultan and some other people, you know, had already thought about it and thought how it would would work. So it was really just implementing. Uh, a an algorithm uh, that they had already kind of determined would be would be the right way to go. Um, I don't know how long that was like it was a much that was a much more difficult task because um, the scaler in Mister is like an incredible piece of um, engineering. Um, it's just it's it's insane. Um, <laughs> uh, so it just took a long time to just understand what it's doing and, and how it's it's doing it. I, I, I want to pause here to go probably into more detail into that because many many users probably don't understand why you need this and why you need to not only upscale but upscan uh, stuff. What what can you tell us about that now that you dived into that? Um so you know the upscaling is it's taking that um Kind of like like VGA signal from the core, uh, and um, converting it into I don't know for lack of a better word it's um, it is it's increasing it's 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 converting it into basically pixels that get sent uh, out over the HDMI port, um, and the tr- kind of the the way you would do this normally and kind of the way a lot of software emulators work is you would um, you know, you would kind of create a low resolution image. Like you would take that video signal and you would write it to what's called a frame buffer, um, where you just have like, you know, 320 by 240 pixels. And you you fill that piece of memory with all the pixel data for the current frame. Um, and then you would send it off to your, um, your rendering hardware to basically like increase the size of that image using some filters like bilinear filtering or something like that. So it can be displayed on your 1080p uh, TV screen. Um, and Mr. Mr. can operate in that way, and some in some cases cores do do operate in that way. But the way the low um, the way kind of like the low latency mode works on uh, in the scaler is it's it's kind of like racing the um, you know it's a term from like the old twenty six hundred days. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like racing the beam, um, where if we were to, if you were to wait for the entire image to to finish drawing before you then make it larger. Um, that's adding a frame of latency. Um, so what the the what the ASCAL scaler in Mister does is, it's basically just it waits for like four lines of of pixel data to be sent to it, and then it starts upscaling as more lines are being sent. Um, so you know 
everything needs to happen in this kind of like like crazy amount of like synchronization to ensure that like your um you know as you're upscaling the the previous data like new data is coming in and you need to discard the old data that you have um it all has to happen at like the highest frequency because it's all happening at like hdmi uh, output frequency so like you know while a core might output um like at a few dozen megahertz the hdmi signal is usually like like about 150 megahertz for uh, 1080p um so it just it's a it's a problem that would be pretty easy to solve actually i shouldn't say easy to solve it's a problem that would be um challenging but easily understandable in the software realm mm -hmm. um and to see it done in the hardware realm is just like just wrapping your head around all of these um you know like divisions that have to happen like you need to do complex math and understand like you know how um how frequently you kind of like read a new pixel from the data and how many uh how many lines you're advancing and you're scaling between like these two arbitrary resolutions it's it's just a lot that has to go on in there um and it's it's amazingly well written but it like making changes to it means you have to kind of start understanding a lot of it so like i just spent like many many nights just reading through the code like looking at a a variable trying to understand where it was coming from why it was coming from what purpose it served um and actually implementing the uh adaptive scanline part of that was pretty simple once i decoded all the other stuff that was going on um and the work from that point was then just trying to make it as optimal as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this is this is the way that, uh, for example, the uh, the open source can convert it that revolutionize subscalers for for all consoles. It kind of works that way, like a, a line buffer. It's called in that in that scenario. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, and uh, mm -hmm. like yeah, you have um, yeah, you basically like in the case of mystery, you have four lines of history basically that it's it's keeping in its mm -hmm. line buffers. Um, and that's what gives it its its low latency, um, but still allows it to do all of the upscaling it needs to do. Yeah, and stability, you know, that's that's really important as well because it it makes it uh, in every single mode you have one mode for for display compatibility, and that helps a lot. Yes, yeah, because many games run like at fifty five hertz or uh, offshoot uh, resolutions that can't uh, be direct multiples of the output resolution. Yeah. So that's why you have four lines, right? Uh, for the for those, um, so if they're running at like a, a different frame rate, um, in those cases, like you're using a frame buffer to kind of like double mm -hmm. or triple buffer the the output. Um, mm -hmm. But the I don't know if the line buffer the line buffer may give you stability and just like in um, if there's any variation like mid frame in how the timing is mm -hmm. working for uh, for pixel output. But uh, Atari and. Uh... Yeah, Atari for sure. Resolution changes, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're laughing because you've played Atari to twenty six hundred and seen what it does. I've played Atari to twenty six hundred. I actually think I might have a claim to fame uh, that I'm I'm unfortunately unrecognized for, uh, which is I think I might have created the most popular Atari twenty six hundred emulator uh, ever. Um, wow! Because I uh, I wrote an Atari twenty six hundred emulator for. Um, uh, for one of our Call of Duty games, and it's like hidden as an Easter egg in there, um, and I think it sold something north of like 90 million copies. So I think <laughs> I think it might, might be the most popular Atari 2600 emulator. Your, your emulator went platinum. Good job. Man. Yeah, yeah, That's really good. 
it's definitely it's not definitely not the best one. Like you can really only play a handful of um a handful of games, but it's it's definitely uh has been on a lot of machines. That's so awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and uh and uh which games did you usually play on it or or what what was it ship ship with? Uh it was uh Pitfall was the main game that was, was played mm -hmm. on it. Um which was uh the Activision Atari games are actually uh, kind of nice because they had their own mm -hmm. kind of framework that they used uh, for most of their games. So they're very kind of uh, because they they were like unlicensed developers essentially. Um, they tried to stick very closely to like their own set of um, standards uh, to ensure that their games worked on all 2600 hardware. Um, so they have a very most of their games have just kind of a very nice clean interface to the uh, to the video stuff. Mm. It's a, uh, it's funny. I'm not nowhere close to to your level on that. But the first uh, uh, program I, I made a disassembler for 2600 in assembler for x86. Okay, you're back in my college days. Yeah, no, that's like you've written too much assembler code. I think like I <laughs> I can I can read it very well, but like I've. I've very rarely written more than a few lines of of assembly for, no, for anything. No, don't don't take me wrong. I am the same way. I can modify it, but uh, start from scratch. No, man, that's that. I don't do that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's daunting. Yeah, it sounds kind of yeah. like where would you even begin with that? From what little I know of it, it <laughs> and, and and it probably isn't, but it it feels that way. Yeah, yeah. I I modify. <laughs> I'm an assembly uh, modifier. That's all. That's yeah. still very rare nowadays for sure so i mean that's that's pretty commendable like like no, if it, yeah sorry i was just gonna say like like 2600 games like they're they're usually so um simple and like since they were all written in assembly like the assembly itself is usually pretty pretty clean like they're mm -hmm. they're really good games to tar if you're like interested in like reverse engineering or just understanding like you know old 8-bit processors like it they're they're fantastic games to just kind of stare at the code and try to understand what's going on. Yeah, because it, it was all in, and, and it was usually one developer, right? Yeah. That helps a lot as well. Yeah. And they, they had to keep all that compl complexity in their head too, so like they, mm -hmm, they can't mm -hmm. really go overboard with how, how complex the code can be. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's a pretty popular CPU, so, so it's a good target to start learning. Yeah. But uh, you were telling us about, uh, sorry, I, I got into all those details, but uh, closing those parentheses, we were talking about, uh, before the, the, the emulator, we, we were talking about the, the line buffer, and before that, we were talking about example projects for, for Mister. Yeah, like, like I, I think I can wrap up like the adaptive handline mm -hmm. stuff. Like, it was, you know, one thing about changing the framework that I was like, like hyper kind of focused on at the time is that anything you do in there is like a cost at all cores have to pay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, we have like, like PlayStation and Saturn development going on. And, and both of those are like pushing uh, the FPGA to its, its limits in, in certain areas. And, and there was some overlap in, in what the scan lines needed, the adaptive scan lines needed to do, especially in its usage of, uh, the DSP modules, which are used for oh. like multiplies, um, and and you know, used a lot in kind of like color calculations, and they were used uh, pretty heavily in the existing like filters. But I was increasing the usage with the adaptive stuff. So, um, you know, I had to spend a lot of time just trying to understand 
how those things worked because there's ways to combine them in uh, such that they will use less uh, resources. Um, and uh, like the solution I ended up kind of settling on was, you know, just support uh, adaptive scan lines either on vertical or horizontal, but not both at the same time, because there wasn't really a reason to support both on the same time. But the uh, the scaler itself is very kind of symmetrical in what it does. Like mm. anything you can do on the when you're scaling up vertically, you can also do when you're scaling up uh, horizontally. Um, so you know, I, I kind of like you know spend a decent amount of time just kind of getting that down to as minimal resource usage as as possible. Um, also kind of just because I, I wanted to ensure it had as much chance of getting accepted as possible, like the less resources it's using, the more likely it will uh, it will mm -hmm. pass scrutiny. Um, I think I probably like I, I definitely over did it because I think in my um, inexperience, like that effort to reduce those like visible indicators made some other things more um, uh, more difficult, like it made it harder for the FPGA to kind of meet its timing constraints. So like there was that Neo Geo core went out a few weeks ago that had a lot of graphical glitches and that came down to uh, just how tightly the the timing was in the in the new adaptive scanline code. So like mm -hmm. the latest version uses more resources but should uh, work more reliably across the cores. Mm, yeah, so you overshoot it. Yes. Basically. Yeah, I can understand that feeling. And um, can can you explain to some of, uh, many many in the audience probably don't know what what's the difference between scan lines and adaptive scan lines? Uh, adaptive scan lines are uh, they're trying to emulate the effect that you get on a CRT, where as the um, as the like intensity of the beam increases, so as it gets brighter, the the kind of like width of the now we're going to get into holy war territory. Like, is the scan line the actual visible part mm -hmm. or the black part? Well, um, we we all know that is the visual the visible part, but we call yeah. the black part the scan line. Yeah. Yeah. So like, as the beam intensity increases, the the visible part of the line uh, becomes like visibly thicker on the on the the CRT screen. So like the adaptive scan lines is basically um, it, bloom. It's it's trying to emulate that, and it, it's doing it by having kind of like a thin filter and a thick filter, and then selecting between those uh based on like the brightness of the the pixel that's being being upscaled at that moment mm -hmm. so it gives you those cute uh, q-tips is what it gives you ultimately <laughs> yeah that's what trash uncle is saying in the chat. <laughs> and uh had you had any experience with scanlines and filters uh, prior to working on this um i'm you know i've i've experienced with like graphics programming and and you know writing shaders and stuff like that but the um you know, like the polyphase filter stuff that Mr. uses, I have really no, you know, like when audio engineers start talking to me about like, um, like dipoles and, and whatever else they, they use for their, their filtering mm -hmm. setups, I kind of, my eyes glaze over. And the same is for if anyone tries to show me some advanced like video filtering formulas, I, I have the same reaction. But the, you know, the way it was explained to me was so simple that I could understand it from like a software engineering perspective. And then it was kind of just taking in my mind how how I would do this in software and adapting it to uh, like the FPGA. It's a, a point, I, I don't want to take much time on it, but uh, computer engineering is about that. You perfectly describe what software engineers are supposed to do. We're bridges between worlds. People describe you what you need to do and you bridged it to the computer doing it. Yes. Right. Um, I, I think one thing I want to do now is like I've 
the kind of two features I've done on the FPGA side in Mister have been like they haven't been hardware. Like I'm not replicating hardware. Um, you know, the, the shadow masks are like a you know they're a graphical kind of like effect. The um, adaptive scan lines, like it's it, there's no you know there's no adaptive scan line hardware in a SNES. Like I'm not replicating some mm-hmm. some chip from there. Um, so like I I think next I would like to try to learn like how to like take a processor or some actual existing piece of hardware and build you know build that in uh, in Verilog or or uh, HDL mm. and like actually like learn that process because I'm really just doing it it's really just taking what I know right now about software and applying it to hardware um, and I w- I want to kind of you know have the constraints of trying to replicate an existing system which I haven't done yet. <laughs> Sentient says, "Neck B thirty calls you." <laughs> yeah, I was going to suggest the pocket station. That's always my go-to anytime. Like a talented person's like, "Hey, I want to win FPGA." All right, okay, you grab the pocket station. Probably the most. Ah, uh, oh, it's uh, so obscure. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's both good and bad that all of the really popular systems are already uh, already done. I'm not complaining that I have have games to play. Yeah, it's it's a hard balance because. Sometimes the most interesting is not necessarily the most popular. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, a difficult issue to tackle. But uh, we were also talking about uh, basic documentation for people to get started with with changes. What can you tell us about that? Well, basically, the um, we currently have a GitHub wiki, and it's pretty good because a lot of people can just edit it. And so there's a whole lot of good development documentation there already. And there's also the documentation for the project. But one of the biggest problems with it was that it wasn't crawlable by Google search bots. So we would get a common problem in the help channel. Okay, that's in the GitHub wiki. Well, I didn't find it by Google. And it's like the amount of times that that was obviously happening <laughs> was was clearly creating like multiple problems per day for people because they can't they're trying to find the answers but they can't um so it was kind of a discussion with um with uh jorge uh jo grape and mm-hmm. um and uh, uh kytrinx and sentient and so many people that and alan so many people that you know we kind of bumped our heads together we all had our different opinions and and I kind of pushed us towards uh, MakeDocs as a platform because it can just be uploaded to GitHub into GitHub pages. So all the hosting is done for you easily and it can be crawled by bots. It's also kind of simple to update. So in general, I the motivation was people are looking for answers and I want them to be able to find them. <laughs> so this was one of the best ways to do it. And then it kind of turned into a big project all of a sudden and consumed a few <laughs> months of my time of just like because on even though it's still got a lot of blemishes i tried to get things i try to get things really right really aesthetically pleasing organized well in a very readable way um i know there's still a lot of blemishes there's still a lot of content missing and i'm i'm still working on it occasionally but i really appreciate if anybody would want to you know submit a pull request go ahead and feel free to um but on the developer side that's um i've started to write a little bit of that stuff mostly i just poured it over um the developer journey that uh superduce superduce did i don't know how to pronounce the name how he wants to pronounce but um he he basically made uh the blockade and battle zone cores i believe 
I think it was both of them. I think it was at least Balzone. And uh, he did analog sound simulations and wrote about, and is still writing, about the journey of how to do that from a developer perspective. And I I think that that's kind of the next phase because um, uh, partly why I wrote those docs is is for the users, but then probably the next step you know, in my mind is, well, I've been starting to learn development, so maybe I could write a little bit about the journey of, you know, for maybe anybody that's curious out there that is overwhelmed or or scared of getting into contributing to the project, they don't know where to start, maybe this could help them kind of get involved. So on some level, that's kind of the next step. But yeah, in general, um, the documentation is so critical, I feel like. Um, I'm mm-hmm. really passionate about it. I've spent way more time writing Markdown than anything else. <laughs> it's just documents, but <laughs> I don't know why I'm so passionate about it. On some level, it kind of makes it so people find the answers so I don't have to constantly tell them the same thing over and over again. That's kind of nice because um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I see the same problem. But I do like that people um, are helped by it. That's really important to me, that people are able to um not just be led you know but they're able to find the answers themselves and get involved i like it when people kind of have to learn about a project have to read up on something and you know there's something about kind of the old computers in the old era where that's kind of what we had to do and even though i'm not you know i'm about 10 years younger than probably you guys i'm not trying to trying to age you right now but (laughs) (laughs) um but even even in you know my era, it was still like that. It wasn't like we were you know uh, programming everything you had to use on it like the generation a bit older than me did. But um, trying to get a DOS program to work, you had to read the manual, then you had to like edit an auto exec dot bat and a config sys, and <laughs> you know. So I I kind of feel like um, writing the documents makes it a little easy to bridge the gap for people to want to get involved, but the project is still in spirit, very much a hobbyist project. And it's just like Waka said, you know, it's inspired him to kind of like learn more. And, and I kind of feel the same way. And I feel like a lot of people have kind of been uh, impacted in a similar way. So I'm probably sounding a little too spiritual about it, but you know, (laughs) Um, no, I I believe that documentation is a cornerstone to get people involved because the the first thing that, can get you, uh, I don't know, uh, reject you from from a program, uh, from from a new thing that you get into is not understanding what you're doing and having up to date documentation. That was the next uh, thing that I was going to ask you about is uh, really important because developers don't like to document. Yeah, that's it's, something I've learned. Um, it's, it feels like repeating yourself, right? Although it isn't, of course, right. Uh, uh, my boss is pretty much the sole developer at our company and has been <laughs> and like self-taught programmer and basically turned our, you know, our software side of things way ahead of other manufacturing companies and which manufacturing in general is like 10, 15 years behind um, other software companies and things like that. And um, that's kind of how I've become useful to companies. I've been documenting a ton and I really enjoy it. So it's the same kind of thing I'm, I'm trying to, in a lesser extent, translate my skills into Mr. to help out. And I do recognize that, that developers really hate documenting. So <laughs> we now have another developer and, and he's the same way. He's like, you know, I, I, I've kind of 
learned how to help him learn what we do and find the information for him. And then I've translated that skill occasionally with uh, Wickerwaka and a few other people. <laughs> I've kind of been picking up stuff at work and vice versa, picking up stuff in the project, taking it into my career. Yeah, in general, I, you know, like you said, it's the cornerstone. I mean, if if somebody wants to kind of get a general idea of what analog, of what IO board they should get, analog or digital IO, um, I wrote up a modern you know, documentation of it. And, but people may not have a perspective of what it looks like. And the pictures on the GitHub wiki were, um, a little outdated. So mm -hmm. I rendered them in, in uh, fusion 360 <laughs> and made some like nice ISO, you know, uh, uh, ISO, uh, angle, uh, uh, fusion 360 models and exported them after rendering them. And, and they, uh, it came out pretty nice, but it just kind of gives people that friendly look. And so, I mean, would a developer want to sit there and just like comb over all of that? And <laughs> you just want to make people use it. Um, so I totally, yeah, I, I'm hoping I'm helping. <laughs> I'm not sure if I am. I'm just doing my best. <laughs> it, it can be, it can be really hard to put yourself in the shoes of like a, a new user or like an inexperienced developer, because like you've already, you know, you know, all what all the steps are like, I like, I try to think back to when I, I bought my Mister, and it's like, it was very confusing. Like, what do I need to buy? Like, do I need to buy, what is an IO board? Like, what is, do I, how much RAM do I need? Like, and uh, now I know all the answers to those questions, but as in like trying to put myself in the mindset of someone who has no mm -hmm. idea what any of those terms even mean, let alone whether they need those pieces of hardware is like a really difficult thing to, thing to do. Yeah, I think I've always kind of, um, even though I'm probably not speaking too well today, I, I've always had that gift of uh, this is like, I'm not a very confident person, but I'm confident in this. I can explain technical things in terms to people that don't really know much about it. And that's been kind of one of my like liaison uh, roles in my career um, is basically I talk, it's like the, the goofy scene in office space. It's like, I literally talk to the users or the customers about something and I relay it to my boss in terms that are more technical after I've filtered through kind of the nonsense, right? You know, the people, you know, that there's moments where they're like, I want this form in our system to do this and that. And I will be able to kind of synthesize what that should be in the technical sense. <laughs> so he doesn't have to deal with that conversation in a way. So it is kind of goofy. It is literally that office space moment where the guy's like, I talked to the, I, I, I'm in the middle between the engineers and the customers, you know, and he's freaking out about his job being taken away. What <laughs> would you say you do here? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I literally do that a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of weird. I, I don't know if I just do it support. I kind of do everything at that <laughs> company. It's kind of strange. Um, but in, in general, um, that's kind of what my goal with the documentation was, was to kind of just ease that process for people to kind of get into the project and get interested. Um, and to make it so that, you know, there's just less people confused in general. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, and the GitHub wiki absolutely is a very good resource. So all the people that put all the work into it, I'm not trying to make it seem like, you know, that wasn't good. It's amazing. It's just, you know, it's not, it's not crawlable by bots. I've used it as a reference for tons of stuff. And uh, it's very important to the process of making these docs. But I have, 
you know, I have like rewritten some things and, and there's been a couple of people that have contributed that have been a lot of help. Uh, this one person, I'm forgetting their name. Um, they know everything about like hooking up these computer cores to networking. They just know everything about it. And it's like something I have zero clue how to do. I don't know how to hook up a late eighties or early nineties core to like some kind of networking setup that just it's mystifying and black magic to me. <laughs> so I definitely need people to help me with that stuff. Uh, I never experienced any of that. I know how to do it in windows 3.11 and that's about it. That's as far back as it goes. <laughs> so yeah, th- anybody that can help me with that stuff would be great. Um, but there's still some more work to be done. Showing off some cores in there. There's a core highlights section I really enjoy. Um, kind of showing off, oh, this is what SuperFX Turbo does, you know, and make a little video for them. And, you know, just so people can kind of see. Maybe they're curious about the Mister and they haven't bought one yet. And they see these little, like, clean videos of what the video output is like and the sound. And, you know, they might be like, oh, that's actually pretty sweet, you know. So... It's been an interesting and, project. <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. How does it feel to be it to be a moving target? I mean, Mister changes a lot fast. Yeah, has that ever uh, been an issue? It's been. It's. It's. I kind of am lucky because I started this after it's more stabilized. I mean, it's different and mm-hmm. changing, but it's the, about the only things that are changing are kind of minor things now, as far as like mm-hmm. the framework. And the general process about it. It's not like I started the documentation before we had um, uh, Schmidty's awesome uh, Mr. Fusion, you know, and like, like I had a whole SD card installer process and then I had to like rewrite it all. No, it's just, you know, it, it just works. <laughs> Schmitty did an awesome job. So like there's a lot of people like that that have contributed that have made things easier. Zach has made the UI, the, U, the user experience incredibly easier in a lot of ways, optimized it. Same with same with uh, Martin here. I mean, and I mean, there's just so many more. I can't even list them all off. Of course, Sorgalig is just constantly <laughs> toiling away. He's the hardest working dude. I can't believe it. Um, it's it's kind of yeah. It does move and change quickly. You're right, and it doesn't it doesn't concern me as much anymore because the project seems to be a lot more stable. Um, there was a time when things would just change up completely. <laughs> There's probably a few mm-hmm. pages that are out of date right now, though, now that I think about it. Because uh, adaptive scan lines and 10-phase uh, <laughs> 10 10-bit coef- coefficients and Lumax, gosh, all these terms I just learned like a couple months ago. Um, those things are not in the guide, but I don't know if they have to be, right? I may just need to show an example. It's kind of one of those things where you have to make a decision. Do I want to overcomplicate it or not? I try to keep things succinct but there's a whole lot to go over in the mister mm-hmm. i mean as as we saw with the my life and gaming video that came out they're like oh you know we're gonna just do a video on you know most things about it and they it was like a freaking full feature length documentary <laughs> you know <laughs> like yeah it was a lot of info and uh, crazy, they were crazy crazy project it's huge uh, i believe they <laughs> made an amazing job oh, and it did. was daunting uh, i i I I I I'm impressed that they tackled it. I because I I saw I saw the fear in their eyes. If you if you yeah. want to put it that way, because it was too much. Yeah. Well, it, I think that they have a very um, they really care about the quality of their work, and they don't want it to be something that's too easily criticized because they were sloppy or something. And mm-hmm. for a project of this size, 
you know, everyone was kind of like, where is it? Where is it? And I'm like, I'm sure they're going to do it. It's probably just really, you know, it's probably just a lot of pressure. <laughs> you know, it's so big. It's a gigantic. Yeah, and, and uh, just as Shaw says, it was two years in the making. Yeah, easily. I mean, yeah. it was in production. It's been months, but but several months. I I I, I might be tempted to say eight, six, or eight. But uh, but they they were gathering info, and, and the moment was right. Yeah, I mean, so what they did was, you know, kind of the equivalent to doing a documentation of the project, but they also had to do video editing and write a script and like <laughs> film all like this stuff and flow. Yeah. Right? It's just amazing that they're able to do that. Those guys are really solid. So, I mean, I kind of, I kind of take a little inspiration from people like that, you know, that, that really put a high level of polish into what they do. And then I, I get about 80% of the way to that polish with what I do, <laughs> but you know, it keeps me going. You know, that, I, I could, I could definitely work on the docs more, but I, I, and I do plan on it. Um, but yeah, I've been it's exploring the developing thing cause I'm trying to learn and empathize with what developers have to do. That's the primary reason I started to get in development is, you know, I think the first time was like, Kytrinks told me I couldn't, couldn't do something in FPGA. And I was like, is that true? I just like, didn't believe her at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to, to, you have to experiment it with your own. Yeah, I was like, is that true? There's no way. There's, that can't be true. And so I just, you know, I, I was very skeptical of, of what she said. And so I go look it up and read about it. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, she's right. Then I'm like, well, there's got to be a way around that. You know, <laughs> look into it. I'm like, oh, this is way beyond my abilities. Okay, that that can't be right. Okay, I can't do that. Okay, crap. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's it's the same kind of thing. I'm 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 going through this now to empathize with the devs. I started the documentation because I really wanted to learn more about the project, but also help other people get into it. I wanted to dive deep into each of the subjects. I mean, it was just a combination of things, but it really, I, I have to say thanks to um, Jay Ogre, to Jorge for helping me, mm -hmm. helping me out a lot. He kind of motivated me. I was kind of unsure of myself and he really... He really was like, no, man, you can do this. You're the one that has to do this. And he was like, pep talk. I'm really glad he did. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> thank you. You're the one. <laughs> you are the guy, you know, like, <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so it was really nice of him to pep talk me. So that's really good. I'm really glad they did. Yeah. And, uh, going back to the other, uh, topics, uh, do you use the scan lines for, for your own gameplay? Um, so it really depends on what game i it's really tight um so like chrono trigger i have in, i'm so happy that martin's playing chrono trigger um i have incredible <laughs> strong nostalgia for playing that like sitting in the rocking chair in my grandma's house you know eating cheez-its <laughs> and like apple slices i don't know just something about that and the scan lines like i just it works in that game. And then like pretty much in every other game, I just don't use them. And then like NES, there's just a few games where I'm like, no, it kind of needs scan lines like Blaster Master. It needs blurry <laughs> scan lines because of all the dithering. And it just, it, the game looks totally different to me. Um, if I play it just raw interpolation, it's just a little too clunky. Um, there's a lot of PlayStation games where before I got the RetroTINK 5X Pro and before I got the X Station and 
modded my place. I'm still surprised I was able to do that um, before I got the X station. And there was a time before that where I'd have been like, there's no way I could play these. And I did say that, like, there's no way I could play these like raw. I've actually gotten to the point where it's like, I can't play them with scan lines. I need that like soft or medium interpolation. It's really strange. <laughs> like, I don't know why that, that changed in my head. But when I used emulators before, it was like, for most things, I would use a CRT shader or scan lines for the longest time. But now I've kind of grown to love like the raw pixels with a little bit of mm. a soft blur to them. I don't know why. Um, the scan lines, though, they really do help with some JRPGs from the Super Nintendo. There's just a little bit of a medium blur. I don't know. Maybe it's just pure nostalgia. It's probably irrational, but... <laughs> Yeah. Well, and and what about you? Well, thank Birdie. Yeah. Thanks for the betrayal. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I, so I like again, like I. It's been so long since I looked at a CRT. Like I don't know. Like I don't have the nostalgia for like the look of of scan lines or any other CRT effects. But like I I do appreciate how they break up. Um, uh, like like the the like the blocky pixels, especially when you're upscaling to a large tv like it, it just adds a it, detail yeah it adds it adds detail in like in in a strange way um mm -hmm. and i feel like the uh the adaptive scan lines just even even like on a very subtle setting they just make it feel less mechanical um i think it's the best way to to like when without them it just to me it just looks like you know you've drawn lines across the the screen um and I think even just with a, light, a small bit of variation, especially when you, you have a lot of uh, like like color gradients on screen, I think it just really helps kind of like sell the effect that it's not just mm -hmm. it's not just that kind of like like simple effect applied on top of it. Um, having said that, like I, I you know I think even the original scan lines look look pretty great. Um, so I generally run with some kind of um, scan line on on any of the uh, the CRT cores. Um, I know some people like to use them even on on the handhelds, which I think is uh, is great. <laughs> yeah, I'd 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 also add uh, that I really do like the adaptive scan lines update. <laughs> so yeah, don't I, take I it the wrong way. That. I know you're joking, but also it's like I really do <laughs> like them, and I was messing around with them a lot when uh, finally they went up into the filters core. But even before then, I was like testing every single one, taking screenshots, and like really scrutinizing and uh yeah no i really do like the addition for for snes you know like i said like i'm happy that we have the adaptives now for sure that, that makes a gigantic difference <laughs> it, it's so, hard for I, it's hard for me to like I, I you know i have a directory on my machine full of like 500 scanline screenshots from just <laughs> testing and, and debugging um and like you know when you're developing it like you kind of want to use the most extreme settings so you can like see when it's it's clearly working and clearly clearly not working um and it, it just it takes a while when i play a game to like to stop caring about them um which can be right. a little bit frustrating where it's just like i don't want to care what they look like i just want to be able to play the game um mm -hmm. but i have to I, you know it takes a while to disconnect from that yeah to me how they look in motion is usually the breaker the deal breaker or not uh, i'm very picky and so I usually like like a medium taper, you know, a little darker than the brightest, you know, because I don't want to mess with the colors. It's like I'm very picky about it. I've, and so with the adaptive ones, um, what I settled on with the 
the updated SNES Scanlines preset was like the best one I found <laughs> for for that. And it's very vanilla and boring, but <laughs> it's the one that I could still see the Scanlines in motion. Um, it looked very similar to the previous preset. Um, for the most part, the brightness is a little different for various reasons. Um, and yeah, you're, I mean, yeah, I totally agree that, that it can add depth that just wasn't there. That's kind of the, I think that's what the nostalgia is for. <laughs> I, I've, I, I believe that it adds detail. That's, that's subjective, uh, yeah. uh, texture, it adds texture. Uh, but uh, the subjective part that always attracted me to scanlines from I don't know 15 years ago I started using them, is uh, is that uh, it makes your mind fill the voids and creates more detail out of uh, with your imagination. Exactly. Your, yeah. I agree. Your brain fills in the gaps. Yeah. I yeah. I really like that perspective on it. That yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's kind of. It can be a touchy subject, but again, we're nerds and we really are personally invested in the things we like. So that's why everyone yeah. gets touchy. And so it, yeah, it's and, okay. Uh, it's okay to have differences <laughs> here. I love my. No, the, it, it's not scanners. okay, my friend. No, no, no. We got to you know, fight over this right now. Okay. No, no. <laughs> scan lines are part of the signal. <laughs> You're not uh, really playing the game if you don't have scan lines. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we, we still have we still have a ways to go in making it you know a little bit more user friendly. Like I think the presets have been like a fantastic yes. addition. Um, you know, but I, because a, a lot of people felt overwhelmed, right? Yeah, even even everyone felt overwhelmed. I think like like, mm-hmm. but even now, like like uh, like M Walrus is asking in the chat about what the scan filter option does. Um, and it's it's such an obscure option that kind of leads you down the wrong. Uh, the wrong road when you see it. Like you, you go in there looking for scan lines of the scan filter option. Like that's the one I should pick, but it's almost always not the one you should pick. Yeah, it's the one if you're using the scan doubler, right? Yeah. Like I keep yeah. forgetting exactly what it is too, because I, I never use it, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of it. It's I originally when when um I can't I can't remember if it was you and Kytrinx. I can't remember who was originally coming up with the presets. No, that was all her. Oh, it was all her. Control. Okay, I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't remember, but I was like, "This could be a great training tool." That was the first thought in my head. Like, people do not know how those filters work. They don't know what they do. But the second they load a preset, they'll be like, "Oh, so the blur goes in the horizontal filter if I'm on horizontal." Like, it's all just gonna start clicking. Yeah, and, it, it gives it gives you like a a baseline from where you can start tweaking. I think is because a lot of people were just like, "I don't know how to get scan lines on screen." Yep. Um, and the presets at least get you to that starting position, and then you can start tweaking the values. Yeah, and so that's kind of the value I saw in it. Like immediately, was just, oh, this will teach people how to use the filters. Yeah. This is yeah. going to lead them down the path, and I think it did help a few people with that. Like, um, I feel like we saw more people contributing. Like, oh, this is my screenshot of my combo of this, and getting like really excited. And I love it when people get in. It, really excited for that stuff i i start you know feeding into the energy <laughs> so i like when people get excited over that stuff it's fun yeah the, the settings workshop channel is one of my favorite ones to to hang out in when people are excited about stuff there's a ton of funky screenshots in there and it's awesome so yeah i really like that yeah and, uh, and uh, a lot of people are also wondering where that's headed to I'm, I'm not going to ask you to compromise on anything but uh, people wonder about uh, saving their presets and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, let me break out some secret 
chats I've had. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, I think it would be a I think it would be a good addition. I don't um I think there's a, a ways to go on some of that stuff. Like I, there's a lot of things I think that could be that could be done to make um uh like some of this stuff more user friendly and uh like like more accessible and just a better user experience but like in my mind like the the video filter the video processing stuff is at least kind of at a point where it's it's usable for most people um like i think you know one thing that came out of the uh the my life in gaming video is just like it's really hard to avoid situations where you have to get in and edit the ini file um and like you know mm-hmm. the the things i'm i'm looking at right now are like trying to find ways to make that less necessary um like ideally we'd get to a world where um you know you can just you know put a put a mr fusion image on your sd card um plug it in and you know it it boots up and you're guaranteed to get video output and it's easy to tweak and really the ini file is just for those people who are like hey i have a you know i've got a weird arcade setup or uh mm-hmm. i really want to go in and like you know like mount uh, like like mount a, a Samba share or something like that. Like it, and it's not for basic stuff. Like hey, I want to enable or disable integer scaling, or I want to enable low latency mode. Right, and I I like that for the most part. Most of the cores. I mean, our, I think arcade cores kind of have to be adjusted for this. But as far as the console cores, that integer scaling is a good example. You know, that was added into it. Now we have kind of a weird overlap because we have the integer scaling in the any. <laughs> we have it in the cores on some of them. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the areas where there could be a lot of improvement um, in addition to preset saving. I, you know, my personal opinion is that a preset saving could act almost like a save state slot, for instance. And, you know, you, you have like four slots of presets, you know, to keep it simple. Right. And uh, people could just load the presets that they liked after they like set something up. I think preset saving would be great. A lot of people to, invest mess with it without having to like put their mister on the network and you know remote into it and like edit in any or something like that um and and i think um yeah i think there's a lot of opportunity still for a lot of that like optimization and slimming down of the user experience i think that um that anybody who's a talented dev and walk included and <laughs> and uh um, people like Zach and and so many more, um, just people come to mind off the top of my head, you know, and people that we don't know about yet could come in and and contribute um, with their ideas. Um, I think it's a good idea to kind of get in there and see what's um, what's worth optimizing, what's not, you know. And uh, you have also worked on on the Demon Byte, right? The arcade encoder. Um, I didn't really work on it. I I wanted to learn PCB design, so I was just like, oh, uh, Mick Giver doesn't seem to be selling them anymore. Um, and his PCB design was closed source, I think. And so I was like, oh, I'll just make like an open source like one. And I'm a total newbie, and I haven't even finished it yet, so don't make it yet if you're... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how good it is, but it was fun to design um, something in KiCad for the first time. Um, it was really fun. It took me... I'm a very slow learner. It took me like 16 hours to do that. I spent a whole weekend doing that. So I think that's that's uh, good actually uh, that you mentioned it. I'm also a very slow learner, and I tend to jump between the 
pragmatic and theoretical frameworks to learn. Right, right. That's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah. I like I had KiCad experience for the first time over the last few months too, and it's it's a it's definitely a steep learning curve on that that software package. I think I think the latest version has has made it a little bit uh, uh, easier, but it's you know you're you're first of all just trying to learn how this weird piece of software works and then you're also trying to like you know learn all these new concepts of of pcb layout and circuit design that you you may not have any experience with either yeah i had a lot of help um pork chop really helped me along so <laughs> i was uh he saw me basically in real time uh reacting to how incompetent i was at keycad for like the entire weekend it was pretty funny <laughs> Uh, that sounds like sounds like pretty good teacher. Him, yeah, I was messaging him and showing him pictures and the the hard part for me to get was the was the polygon fill. All that stuff was like really hard to wrap my head around because I had to use because uh, there's a lot of wires on the one I was doing for my first because I, I had messed around with a PCB design thing a while ago, but I just totally screwed it up and I just kind of hadn't visited in months. And uh, with this one, I was like, I'm gonna actually do it. I'm gonna do it. So I had to have like vias because I I wanted the the uh, they always call them like B1, B2, B3 for like arcade buttons and stuff. I wanted them like in logical order, but how they're lined up to the Arduino Pro Micro is like <laughs> all spread out at different pins. So I had to kind of like have overlapping wires and I just have never had to like think that way before. <laughs> so I had these like overlapping wires. I do the polygon fill and these are like empty spots where it should be, you know, filled to ground. And yeah it took me quite a while to wrap my head around why why i was even having that problem how to even fix it that was like half the time i spent was just trying to fix the darn polygon fill problem <laughs> um the other half was the other half was both occupied by getting a an arc to look good um which uh the new uh lead developer at the company i work at like did pcb design like originally worked at board shops and he's like, Oh yeah, arcs suck, man. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so it's not just me. All right. <laughs> like, he's like, yeah, arcs are horrible. I hate doing them. <laughs> okay. I'm glad somebody else didn't like it. <laughs> so, And for anybody that doesn't know arcs are like the rounded edges of a board. Sorry. I should have clarified that. It's like a, a part of a circle. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we were talking about uh, the PCV design and about the theoretical and pragmatic uh, uh, part of learning. I don't know if you have experience with that. If you first just like uh, read all the theory and then just apply it, or you just first grab the thing and disassemble it and play with it and then read the theory. What's your, your preferred method? I have a weird preferred method. Um, I have like crippling anxiety with regards to like things I don't know what to do with. Uh, just old stuff in my past so i read a ton about something and i then realize i don't know what i'm reading because i don't have the technical background to read it then i just read some more and i get comfortable with the idea of trying it then i try it and it's like bashing my head against a wall for like hours <laughs> and yeah so i just kind of clumsily i make so many mistakes i make so many wrong assumptions somehow i get to the point of eventually being like the beginning of intermediate at most and then i go on to the next thing <laughs> so i'm one of those people mm. that i'll i'll never be like an expert in anything and that's totally i totally embrace that about myself i you know i i, I see experts like martin and kytrinks and stuff and i 
I'm like, yeah, that's not me. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, I, I, like I completely out. empathize. Yeah, I like spreading I'm, I'm out the same way. a lot of a decent amount of the general higher level concepts of how a lot of things work, and that's enjoyable to me. Um, so, but yeah, it's a big. I mean, you said you streamed when you developed. I wouldn't be able to stream when I developed. It'd be just be expletives and uh, like me <laughs> pulling my hair out and like getting stressed out. And yeah, so it's something I. I do and I enjoy the end, but the process of it is incredibly <laughs> stressful. <laughs> I don't know why I do it though. I just can't keep trying. <laughs> I, uh, like, uh, you know, I, I definitely like read a lot. Um, in most cases before I like jump into, into some, something new, like I'll, you know, when I was learning, uh, like Verilog stuff, like I just read a bunch of like articles and, and pages on it. Just try to kind of get a feel for, uh how it works and and what the terms are like oftentimes that's one of the most difficult things for me is just like you jump into some new piece of tech and there's a whole bunch of words and ideas that you just have no idea what they mean um you know like like um uh like like combinational logic and i'm like what the hell does that mean i don't understand what that is um and you just have kind of have to like keep like unless if you're not doing like a like an actual course on it and you're just kind of like googling and and reading you know, like snippets of information, like it can be hard to pick up on what some of those basic uh, pieces of terminology are. Um, but I think for like the practical, uh, like like practical work, like YouTube has become such a fantastic resource for me. Like, you know, I, I just watched a bunch of videos on surface mount soldering to kind of like, you know, build my own confidence just by watching other people do it and kind of convince myself that it was something I could do. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Um, I didn't know anything about 3D printing. And then I'm on like the additive manufacturing team at work, like immediately. (laughs) uh, YouTube was a huge part of it. Um, Just watching some good YouTube channels on 3D printing. And and the same thing happened with soldering. Um, Basically, um, I watched a bunch of different people that showed you how to solder and I watched the pace soldering tutorials. Like I can't recommend those enough. The like late 1970s videos. Oh my <laughs> gosh, you got to watch those. They tell you everything about all the concepts of how it all works down to the basic level. Um, but, um, and then within months I was soldering the X station on there, which is not that easy. <laughs> you know? Those, uh, so, there, there are some fifties and sixties videos that are amazing for that. Yeah. The pace soldering videos, the pace soldering tutorials, it, they just explain to you why flux is so important. They explain to you about the dwell time and like dwelling after you solder and pulling off, you know, to avoid the cold, it's just these little details that actually make it a lot easier to solder and get it right. Um, they teach you really how the braid works when you're desoldering. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things are so critical. So, I, yeah, I agree completely with what Waka is saying. Like, you, the internet is so incredibly powerful at learning all of these things now. <laughs> Such a powerful tool. Yeah. More so, like, I have some nostalgia for the old internet, but the old internet was also kind of a, uh, with regards to, like, really easily accessible and good information for these kinds of things, almost a wasteland. It, it was, like, really difficult to find a lot of stuff. Um, you had to dig so deep and there wasn't like data sheets for tons of things all over the place. You know, it's just, it feels like, you know, uh, it, it feels like we just have so much access to information right, you know, at our fingertips now. It's incredible to see it turn into this now. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take this moment to ask the audience uh, if they have any questions. 
they should uh, place them in the chat right now so that we can read them before we we approach the end of the program. And uh, yeah, I agree. The old internet did have a lot of stuff, but it was hidden away, and we didn't have video. Video makes it so much different. Of course, sometimes you just want the same thing in text, right? But but video makes it accessible, and and you can see what is happening. Yeah, like one like one morning, I. Uh, went out of my house and my deadbolt wouldn't close. And uh, so I couldn't lock my house. <laughs> so I was freaking out. And I just like look up the deadbolt that I have. It's one of those uh, deadbolts with the keypad. And there's this solenoid inside apparently uh, that has a dumb spring in it. And it has a lever that latches onto the spring. And if it skips a few steps on that spring, it doesn't doesn't lock it again. It doesn't engage so I can't lock or unlock it. So I had to look up a YouTube video. I took it apart that morning, was late to work, and uh, fixed it and put it back in. And it was like, how would I have ever done that? You know, <laughs> I had to like call a locksmith in, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, you know, it, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, and then you can find communities dedicated to this stuff, right? Like in Discord, you can go right in and ask something about the mystery, and there'll be probably somebody at the time that you ask that will know the answer. Yeah, I'm I'm in the Python Discord and have been for a while because I occasionally need a little help. <laughs> and it's the same exact kind of thing. It's like instant responses <laughs> from so many talented people. And the Mr. Discord is absolutely full of those people. Um, it's just incredible. I go to the dev chat and I ask a question and I get like four people that <laughs> immediately are experts on that subject. Uh, you know, giving me the you know, giving me the privilege of of you know, given their knowledge to me. So it's great. <laughs> yeah. And Sentient asks, uh, how did you get into MD Fourier? Right. This is, I think you were kind of more the gateway. Your project was more the gateway of getting me into the technical stuff than almost anything. Um, basically, uh, it's hard to pin down, but I had a gut feeling that something was wrong with like the Genesis core. It was ended up being wrong that it, I was wrong, but I had this gut feeling that it could be wrong or it might be wrong with one of these sound things. And then I kind of like was, how do I figure that out? And I saw a video about MD Fourier or Fourier. I keep saying it like, like it's a French word or something. I don't know. Um, it, it is a French word. I, I, I say it in Spanish, so don't worry about it. Oh, interesting. I say MD Fourier. So oh, don't okay. worry. I'll say Fourier <laughs> then. Okay. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. That's not, not proper, but that's what I say in, in, in Spanish. So, um, so basically I started, you know, looking into that, but then I found out about the 16 bit audio file project by Don Luca Yeah, and yeah. Amazing project. Yeah. And he's, he's a great guy. He's very, um, he cares very deeply about it. Um, getting the quality of the audio, right. And basically the 16 bit audio file project is taking the original hardware, getting a really clean as, as good as possible recording off of the real like game music from, um, from original hardware of a, originally Sega Genesis. It's spanned into other projects now. And, and an amazing uh, part of getting that done correctly is MD Fourier gets you to validate for, you know, I'm probably not going to use the, I'm going to like put pressure on Artemio right now with the words I'm using probably. Um, <laughs> but it, it enables you to kind of validate that your system is operating normally. You know, you don't have like a bad capacitor potentially in the analog uh, audio output. Um, 
you don't have like some broken components or something else messed up you hey look i have a sega genesis model one va3 that was made in uh taiwan and it should sound like the other ones that we know are working right right so um md4 kind of like i wanted to do recordings for the 16-bit audio file project i wanted to compare against the mister to see if anything needed to be fixed and then like look at it and go i can't fix that ask somebody you know, at the time that's what my capabilities i don't know if i could do it now either the sound stuff is very confusing um so yeah i got into it because of just loving to listen to this music and obsessing with the sound being just right i mean I've used emulators forever and Sega Genesis is probably one of them that is like one of the hardest ones for them to ever get right uh, just yeah. to my ear. And only recently have the software emulators gotten it right. I mean, Blastem is incredible. Um, yes, it's really good. It's made by um, by a very talented person who's uh, uh, like Mask of Death is what he goes by. Or I always forget what he goes by. But um, he... Um, he also contributed in like the video game music file scene for a long time. And then he basically, I think he made Blastem like because he wanted to get the audio right. I think last, <laughs> last time I talked to him, but um, yeah, the work he's done is amazing. Genesis plus GX as well now has benefited from a lot of this work. Um, MAME as well, as you know, uh, Artemio, you know, MAME's uh uh, audio driver was advanced significantly because of MD4 years. So the Genesis. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, uh, plug. You got oh yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. He worked on the main audio stuff, I think. I, yeah. He, he's an amazing developer, David. Yeah. David. Yep. So David has, um, helped out with that. And it, I guess the work he did went into MAME for the Genesis okay. core. And so now it has yeah, very he usually contributes sound. to, to main. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's done a good job with that. So, I mean, it, it's a far cry from what it, Genesis emulation was at a point where it was like one of the only systems where I'm like, ah, I just can't play this game on software emulation. <laughs> just the sound has to be perfect for me for that. I don't know why <laughs> I'm very sensitive. I, I fire up shining force too. And something would just sound barely off and I couldn't pinpoint what it was. So, but yeah, I got into MD4 here because I, I really believe in that vision of that project deeply. Um, it's, it's a great project. And I don't have any programming talent for that kind of thing, but, you know, the, the funnest, I've got bragging rights, okay? I, I don't brag very often, but I have a, 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 a Sega Mega Jet, which is just obscure for people that don't know. Mm -hmm. It's like, it fits in your hand, but it hooks up to the TV. It was made for airliners to play like Sega Genesis games on airliners with the TV that they had on them. So it's literally like, it looks sort of like a handheld Sega Genesis with no TV on it, no, no screen on it. And, uh, there was not a MD4 year recording on that yet. I don't think <laughs> there might've been one, mm -hmm. but so I, no, I there could, wasn't. Oh, there wasn't. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't remember. So I, I got a mega EverDrive pro pretty much primarily for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, also because I had CD capability and, we recorded it and then we found that it does have the Sega CD lines on that, which was, it was fun to contribute like some tiny infinitesimally small, unimportant, fun little thing <laughs> to the scene. And that was like my first, you were my gateway on that. Cause I kind of, yeah, your project was definitely my gateway on that. Cause I, I was like, Oh now that was an, that was an awesome moment to be like, Oh man, I got the, 
it's not like the Nomad because everyone thought that system was a lot like the Sega Nomad. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's actually very different. And I took it apart and I sent all the stuff over to the guy at uh, Console Five, gave him the list of all the you know all the IC capacitors yeah. and pictures and because I oh, guess great. nobody did that before on the Mega Jet. And when you look at it, it's completely different than the Nomad. It's actually almost like a late generation or like it's like a mid generation model two Genesis that's just been like slimmed down somehow. It's really weird. It's very similar to those. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> nice. And, and for those listening, the MD3, I just compares two audio signals that are synced by the synthesizer uh, to the frame rate or to a specific pattern. So it, it really does nothing uh, on itself. It's up to the interpretation of the user and the people that, that are, uh, but well, extrapolating information from it yeah it's a very scientific tool i would say um i mean you've written like a white paper on it <laughs> like <laughs> I, you wrote I, I, like your documentation it looks like it was written in latex was it written in latex yeah of course okay of course awesome. i love latex that's awesome <laughs> you took it to the next level i love it um so the um basically yeah it, it's comparing two signals so we record something from the sick genesis and then you record something on the Mr. Core, you know, and this is a tone generator. It, it generates tones that the Genesis could put out. And you compare if, if the frequencies were more intense than the other at this specific time, or if the frame had jitter, like it, it was running a little too fast or too slow, just for any kinds of differences. So it, the MD4 allows you to compare that. The larger project is is like every system needs to have a tone generator. You know, that's the bigger task. You know, yeah. that, that's the long that's the long haul. That's gonna be the That's the thing that'll take the rest of my life. And yes. and I, I like that you're devoted to that. It's awesome. <laughs> it's so important because <laughs> these it, systems it, aren't gonna be around forever. Yeah, it's amazing to me. Like, you know, I, I said to this to you like a few days ago, like I had no idea that this is the stuff you were involved in. Um and like the fact that like these retro platforms have such amazing like pieces of test software like md4a and uh and uh 420 p test suite which is is my favorite game um <laughs> I, lo- I love 420p token it. it's uh it's uh it's like you know as someone who's like you know working with these things and needs references for uh video just having that software is just fantastic across a bunch of different cores Thank you. That's that's basically what attracted me to Mister because when uh, I I I created this suite like ten years ago for upscalers, and it was kind of used for that. But main interest was in lag. Nobody cared much about aspect ratios or uh, balance, color balance, and that things. Uh, but but Mister simply embraced it and used it in, in a way that it wasn't used before, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and and these like this quality of software doesn't always exist in like professional fields. Like the fact that this is like purely amateur is, is really impressive. Well, and and it is amateur. Uh, it's it's not really. Uh, I I mean I use vector scopes and oscilloscopes, but I'm not the best at this. I'm just the guy that that's doing it. I, I please if somebody can do this better than I can, please please step up step up. Our demo is. For for anybody <laughs> listening, he's like he's like 
incredibly humble and like has made this like awesome thing that's like really complicated and he's like oh i didn't do much it's you guys who did it and it's like oh come on dude you're, you're pretty awesome no, no, you're it's, pretty it's, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 just a series of yeah. uh of fortunate uh, uh, things really 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 because uh you know you've you've uh, as a community you've corrected a lot of things that were wrong in the suite right like somebody just testing the the pc engine version and uh, you got right. You you got the pixel aspect ratio wrong on your your test. Oh right. And yeah. and then I can go back and compare it with Mister and make it right. But uh, I I I am just doing whatever I can. It's not perfect. Please please. <laughs> if somebody <laughs> oh, yeah. knows better, just push it please. Yeah no, it's yeah. it's a it's a collaborative thing. There's a lot of people behind yes. the scenes helping out. Yes. Before you exactly. Like, I mean I. I'm not in the Discord now because I needed to be in less Discords, but <laughs> I was like in like 20 at a time. It was overwhelming, but I was in there for a while and just seeing behind the scenes how many people come together to help out in this. Like like your your friend Roman, he's just really <laughs> he's helped out a ton too. And 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 David here, uh, shout off, you know, he's, yeah, he's helped out a ton. And there's so many people that have helped out a lot. David Plug as well, so. Yeah, the the project wouldn't be uh, where it is without the help of the people because I I, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I was just uh, figuring out something. Just as you said, I I don't want to talk more too much about this, but I simply started. Uh, I started because my life in gaming asked me to check out the Mega SG audio. Oh really? I Genesis. didn't know that story. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't know that's why. Yeah, and uh, and I mean I I I'm a. Some people would qualify me as an audiophile. I'm, I'm air quoting right now, but uh, I'm not really. I'm, I don't have the ears of Ace here in the in the in the chat. Yeah, you right? need the data and to determine if it's correct, right? And, exactly. Yeah. If I was gonna help, I, I wanted data, and I had made a project to identify when the rang uh, they would rang the bell in my home. Ace is so. To comment on what Show's saying, yeah, Ace is definitely the audiophile. Ace Ace can yeah. like hear a difference in a Sega Genesis like a mile away. He could be a yeah, mile away right. and hear like, okay, the 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 tone of that Sonic Two, the Hedgehog, sounds a little bit too recessed in this instrument. It's like, dude, exactly. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he, the stuff he hears and knows about with with especially with the Sega Genesis, he's a legend. Total legend. In, agree. <laughs> and and what Dodal says is, is perfect. Uh, he says, your software levels here with our eyes. That, that's it, yeah. Because I, I couldn't be precise on my vocabulary or, or description. And uh, and I simply adapted the software I, I had made to check my... my, my uh, <laughs> the, the ring, the bell in, in, at my home that would notify me to my, my cell phone. I adapted that, and and that's the basis of MD4. Yeah, so <laughs> really awesome. It's a great tool. <laughs> it, it's it's <laughs> kind you. of um like catapulted a lot of. You've been, I mean, I know you're here to have us on, but I mean, I don't know if people hear enough about what you do for the project too. So <laughs> it's like the PC Engine colors. You know, you helped in developing that. Um, yeah, but I I was just helping. It was all David and and Trainix and right. There's a lot of people. And that burner. Yeah, there was a lot of people. It, 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 it would be unfair to just list a few. It's, it's just one of those things that, you know, I, you know, I, I love and appreciate all the people that, 
that contribute to this project and all the emulation projects, all the software emulation. It's just, it's so awesome to see. I, I'm coming into this mostly as somebody who's just a user of these things for so long and I've only recently become involved. Most of you are like legends to me. Like I, I've like played, <laughs> I've like played people's translations that I feel like I'm like a fan of the emulation scene that finally gets to talk to people who did the things that I was a fan of. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of how it feels. So it's been a privilege to kind of, get to know everybody and see what goes on behind the scenes and, and also get to, you know, help out. So that's all I, I feel did. that we all, uh, we all feel the same way. Yeah. It's and that's cool because uh, people uh, work. And, uh, just as you mentioned, as Marvin, as Martin said, it, this, this break makes you learn. And, uh, there's a bunch of people that know, know a lot more than you do, uh, regarding the theme surrounding the, the, the project. And, uh, that makes it grow and, and that's cool. Yeah. And I, yeah, it's, it's definitely awesome. I, I was really excited when Martin started getting involved, by the way, <laughs> I could tell like, <laughs> and he's like very heavily experienced, uh, um, developer. And it was like, Oh, here we go. The big guns. Here it comes. And I'm, I'm really happy that you're involved in it too, Martin. <laughs> oh, thanks man. Yeah. It's really awesome. And I, you know, I'm always humbled because there's always people that know so much more about programming, but also FPGA. Um, so I'm really, really happy that everybody kind of uh, is very patient with me in explaining things that I have no clue about when I'm asking too many questions. <laughs> asking questions is good, and it's something that we should entice people to make more. Yeah, and that's why I like this community. Everybody's kind of, we're all, we're all basic nerds. We're pretty cool, you know, and, and we're... Yeah, I really appreciate the whole Discord community as well. I'm, I don't know. I'm just feeling the love right now. I'm trying to spread it out. So <laughs> that's that's really good. And uh, Martin, what what uh, what stuff uh, would you like to see in mystery in the in the coming months, years? Like um, like like cores, you mean, or um, yeah, like cores. I don't know. Like I I feel um, there's a lot of arcade there out too mm -hmm. uh that could still be done i'm trying to think off uh like i i would love to see outrun i gotta say it um oh amazing uh but it, it's unclear whether it's possible um uh some of the uh irem games like like r type and stuff like that i think that would be be great and i think that's like if i was to work on a core like like some of those um like mid late eighties arcade cores I think are achievable for a beginner, at least to um uh to get started. I feel kind of it, it's a little bit intimidating sometimes too because there's people out there that are doing such a great job um of really meticulously like recreating hardware. Um that it feels it feels kind of bad in a way if you if you know if I I went and you know looked at MAME and just kind of copied MAME's implementation and didn't really follow uh, like hardware PCBs and stuff like that to to really do a like a, a guaranteed uh, more accurate recreation. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if that's going to stop me from from doing things or not. Well, if 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 you ever do that, I I am a arcade PCB collector and I can help out in testing whatever you you need. I I don't have so many games, but I do have our type. And uh, I spent quite a lot of time repairing, like two years repairing <laughs> an M72 for our, our type. Yeah? Yeah. I'm, I'm not an expert, not a hardware expert at all. I understand arcade hardware from the software perspective. 
and obviously uh, basic digital design. But uh, being a software developer gives you a particular experience because you can write software for the PCB and see it from the inside and explore it from that way. Yeah, like and, it, it, it's. I definitely have like the ability to to probably debug on the the software side, um, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is useful. It like just saying that it kind of reminds me like I I wish there was a more burgeoning like homebrew scene for some of these arcade boards. Um, oh yes, yes. Like it would be great to have. Uh, even even like Neo Geo like doesn't have a very big homebrew scene from what I can see. It's grown a lot last year. I'm, I'm uh, I've been following it because I want to create uh, MD Fourier for for Neo Geo, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's grown quite a lot in the last year or two years. Yeah, like I'd love to see what like a, a CPS to like homebrew uh, scene yes. would look like, or someone to actually like develop a uh, a new game for those platforms would be pretty crazy. Um, because uh, what was the Genesis game I played? Uh, Demons of Asterberg, I think it's called? Yes. Um, yes, 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 it is. And like playing that game and, you know, having a target that Genesis hardware, but then like, you know, not being like just a simple thing of mainly not being limited by uh, cartridge size. So they could use a really big ROM and just being able to have so many frames of animation um, mm -hmm. and just make it look amazing. Um, like I would love to see what a, a modern uh, like like team would be able to do on on some of that older arcade hardware. Yeah, I would love to see System 16 or or CPS2 as you said. Yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, there's there's been some efforts uh, on CPS1 and on CPS2, and there there have been hacks like the Final Fight one. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, uh, th those are amazing. I I really admire th that kind of work. So and. Uh, Kevin, what uh, what would you expect from Mister in the coming months or years? Um, as far as expecting, I mean, as far as cores, man, there's there's a good amount of. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out my buddy Moon Dandy here. There's a lot of these educational cores that could come out that I I think are pretty intriguing. It would be fun to have. There's all these like obscure like educational computers and game systems that are. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some people exploring them by like decapping their chips. There's this one group that, that he follows that, I mean, they're decapping the chips of educational computers. Like awesome. <laughs> it's like the most obscure, interesting, awesome thing. I love it. And, and seeing some of those come out would be really funny and fun. Yeah. Speak and spell. Dowdle just said it. Speak and spell would be great, especially with like the, 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 the ones with the uh, vocal chips in them that have all these like really weird, um uh analog or they're like analog uh voice modulating things or whatever mo voice synth uh, voice synthesizers or whatever i don't know what the term would be um but having those things recreated would be great um i'm really hoping that we get more um development in analog sound chips being recreated there's a whole lot from like the arcade era that like the early arcade where we're just using uh samples and recordings um, there's a oh yeah, and in emulation, you mean in emulation, just to explain to the public, because those uh, use timers like five five fives and resistors and capacitors to create the sounds. Yeah, and an emulation just used samples. Yes. Well, in the Mister, we just use samples too. I mean, it's emulation as well. It's just a different kind. That's gonna be really spicy, but whatever. Um, but in the Mister, there's a lot of arcade cores that just use audio samples, and it's because like those analog audio circuits and the chips and stuff are just not 
super well documented or haven't been decapped or haven't been fully explored, or if they have been, it's just a really difficult thing to make full analog audio in FPGA. It's just, it seems like it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, so that would be, a, I, I, I anticipate that that's going to keep being worked on. Um, there's a few people that are working on that. I don't have any insider info, but that that's kind of what I would like to see. So, and what I've seen a trend of, um, it, it'd be, that's a very interesting part because that is the hardware that is, is that most danger of disappearing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you look at the, uh, so the recent one I've kind of, um, talked with some people about is uh, the SCO one, the Votrax chip that was like in Qbert and Gorf mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, that chip, you try and buy one today. It's like hard to mm. even find one. And when you can, they're going to be like three or $400 because people in the DJ scene and like the electronic music scene, they bought them up and they're using them for, you know, their little special synthesis uh, synthesizer setups. And I mean, they're all gone and like the pinball scene and they, those chips apparently like decompose and like just break themselves very easily, even compared to others. So <sighs> they're just like going to be gone. There is a full decap of it. There's a full like schematic that someone made of it. And I looked at it and I was like, yeah, I'd love to be able to do something like this. And, and, and as, as usual, uh, Kytrinx is like, oh, that'd be easy. You just do this and this. And I'm like, uh, I'm not that good. She <laughs> just says something's easy. And I'm like, it's not that easy. <laughs> not easy for me. Um, but yeah, I'd love if someone worked on that. You know, that's something I'd really like to see is even though we have the recordings and it'd be almost indistinguishable on some of these, there are things like, you know, you play Qbert and you hear him make a sound and it's clear it's a recording to me, at least to my ears. And so it's like, oh, it'd be really cool if you could have that generated from there, from the hardware preservation standpoint, but also all that. Um, the it's it's not just that. There's more to to replicate in the system. It's you can construct on top of it. You can filter it. You can generate higher quality stuff. But most importantly, you are uh, well. I believe documentation is the basis for preservation. And uh, if you just uh, have a recording, the recording, uh, I mean, you can convert it uh, between formats, but even so, and, and it's not going to happen, but it's just a, some, a dumb example. If in 100 years from now, somebody finds that uh, PCM recording and they don't know the standard, they won't be able to play it back. Yeah, they won't but, have the same thing. It's uh, yeah, it's a museum but, with fakes inside. Right? Yeah, but if, if, if they have the documentation on how that thing works, then they can recreate it, re-implement it, whatever. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, I see it the same way. So that's more of the stuff I'd like to see. Is and, and it's like, it's just my personal wishes. There's no pressure on anybody to do it. I know you, you work on what you want to work on. That's totally fine. If I had the abilities... The first thing I do is a few of these like little niche things. Like the, I always say this, the, the EEPROM support in the Sega Genesis core, it's like totally not that necessary at all because <laughs> there's SRAM hacks for like every one of those games. And then there's like five, like really bad sports games that used it. <laughs> and that's about <laughs> it. So it's like, it, it have like no payoff. It's Sonic three, right? Or, uh, Sonic three, I think. No, that's using FEROM. Yeah, right? that uses FRAM and that, that works. FEROM works. Yeah. Um, it's only the ones with the EEPROM because they read them kind of differently. I, I see. Yeah, it needs like a... It's memory mapped, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's like an I... I think it's an I2C protocol 
So it kind of has like a weird, yeah, it's a little different. Um, but basically it's little stuff like that where it's like, it'd be nice to have that all like in HDL when possible to have it documented well. And so, yeah, there's, there's only one game that I think it's, there's two games that I think that it's really valuable to have the EEPROM support. And that's like NBA jam, um, Mm. which used EEPROM on most versions of it. And, uh, one of my favorites, uh, Wonder Boy and Monster World, use EEPROM. Mm. And so right now you really? have to use the SRAM hack. I didn't know hack. that. Yeah. Right now you have to use the SRAM hack for it. Um, so it's kind of a bummer. It's such a great game. Uh, and it's a rather early game, right? Um, I don't know. No, yeah. this is Wonder Boy and Monster World, so this is like Wonder Boy 4. Um, oh, 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 now I get it. The, the one with Asha. Yeah. Uh, no, it's the one. Oh, no. Is it Wonder Boy 4? I think it's Wonder Boy 3 then. It's the one before the one with Asha. Okay. So it's the Yeah, I believe that one's uh, it's early is it in the, pretty in the... Early? Yeah, I don't know. I, I believe so. I'm I don't really know. No, you might be right. Yeah. I I don't know. I just was like, yeah, it might be pretty early for an EEPROM then. That's a good observation. I I didn't think about that. Um but yeah, it's basically those are like the only two games that I think are really <laughs> worth it for. <laughs> it's like NBA Jam and that. Um and even then both of them work. We have SRAM Max, so. Yeah, it's a 91 game in in Japan. So wow. it was two years old. The Genesis was two, well, three years old. It's pretty early, almost. And yeah. I think the EEPROM stuff didn't really occur until later. So that might have been one of the earlier EEPROM games. That's like, or or maybe it's the North only North American release. That's February from '92. It was a year uh, to release from. Yeah, I think it's from the Japanese version. I, maybe that's the case. I think it's I don't know. EEPROM on all. They did weird things with the Wonder Boy series. I've discovered mm-hmm. through the Sega Master System. Um, hardware target games database update i just did it's like in europe only they had the wonder boy in monster world port to sega master system but it like wasn't in japan (laughs) it's all these like weird things that happen with that it's really strange i don't know interesting (laughs) yeah i'm finding out all kinds of strange stuff about the library uh based on that so they did the same kind of thing on the genesis where all the weird renaming and it's a little confusing (laughs) and uh uh, Martin, what would you advise for new new developers or people that want to get their feet wet on on developments on the platform? Um, I think the main, the first advice is just you know, um, I would recommend diving in and getting, you know, if you have software development experience, like just set up the, uh, like get a main build environment set up so you can actually combine the main, the compile the main, uh, mystery setup because there's a lot of stuff that can be done, um without touching any of the FP, FPGA side of things. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of code and stuff you can you can look at and deal with. And I, I found it very useful to understand that aspect of of Mr. before jumping into the actual uh, FPGA side. Um, and you know, I don't know if my path that I've been following like makes sense for other people, but you know, um, I, I I enjoy doing things that uh, have a have a broad impact which is why like i think most of the stuff i've been doing has been in like mr main itself or or in the in the framework where it gets used by um multiple cores um but you know there's if you like listen if you follow along the discord like there's there's plenty of people who are just like slowly putting their own cores together with their um uh you know slowly over time and i think that's a perfectly valid way to go about things too so um I would just say find something that interests you and, and dive in and, and try to mess around with it. 
Hmm. Right. I don't think it's fantastic. Yeah, because fantastic advice, but it's just if you're if you're interested, like I I think there's 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 ways to explore both on the software and the hardware side, and and you can uh you just kind of got to get in there. I'll just add really quickly that is awesome advice. If you're not interested, you're not going to learn any programming if you're not interested in it it doesn't matter if it's for mr or not <laughs> it's what gives you perseverance against the frustration that comes with it yeah exactly yep yeah so uh we're about to close if uh somebody else has any any more questions just please uh place them in the chat right now but meanwhile it has been really great uh, talking to you guys yeah it's been awesome thank you so much for doing all these and and uh having me on i I don't know if I uh, stand toe to toe with sitting here with Martin next to <laughs> me on it, but you know, I feel a little out of place. But it was good to be able to talk about stuff. So, well, that, don't worry. That's uh, ridiculous. I always feel out of place. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Sorry, Martin. <laughs> no, I was just telling Bertie he's being ridiculous. Um, yeah, you know, I, I could listen to you guys talk about arcade hardware and and weird obscure stuff for a long time. So. <laughs> Oh, that's uh, awesome. But yeah, yeah. That, like, thanks for having us, and thanks everyone who, who hung out and listened. Um, it's been great. Yeah, thanks to everybody for, um, thanks to the whole Discord server and the whole community being so awesome. <laughs> I'll say that. So it's the easiest community to moderate I've ever <laughs> been involved in. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it certainly is. And uh, thank you very much, uh, everybody. And uh, also, if you either Martin or or, or uh, Kevin have something else to add or something that you want to tell people about, is just please please feel free to do so. Any other project you're working or, or interest you have. Oh, well, I'll, I'll just talk really quickly about the arcade cores that I've been porting with uh, Jason A. under mm -hmm. Alan's please. guidance. In general, uh, it's all Williams second-generation hardware. Um, this was completely a first for me. I had to learn so much so quickly, but... You know, most of what I did was so heavily guided. <laughs> so a lot of credit goes to uh, Kytrinks and um, Porkchop definitely helped me with schematics recently on on reading schematics and interpreting. Um, Jimmy Stones and Alan's gave, Alan gave me so much advice. And uh, Jason A has done such a good job at, at helping move along uh, the Inferno core to such a good degree, helping get Turkey Shoot going. So we're going to be working on those soon. Um, that's I'm still learning how to first define an accumulator and use one <laughs> in code. <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to make it so diagonal inputs are impossible for for one of the cores because it screws everything up. So it's kind of got a few things to learn. Sorry, it's taken a while. <laughs> so Oh, take your time. And, and, uh, <laughs> take your time. And if you can document uh, along the way, or others, I bet they'll be grateful about it. That's what I'm trying to do. The the GitHub has, uh, they each have a docs folder and the ROM calculations about how to set up the MRA are there. I try to maintain a Git history of each step now that they're in there. Um, in general, I try to comment things somewhat, but I also try to keep it simple to read so that people can pick mm -hmm. up and learn. So. That's part of my goal is to learn how it's done and have a good template for porting a core like that and stuff. So even yeah, though I'm not amazing. an expert, <laughs> I'm doing something <laughs> yeah. like that. It's kind of weird, but <laughs> yeah. But but the thing is, you you never get to be an expert uh, until you you get your feet wet on it. And uh, when you're finally an expert, you feel completely out of the field because you understand you know nothing. 
Right. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. <laughs> so, well, thank you very much. I hope you have uh, a great weekend. Martin, it's been a pleasure uh, to talk with you and uh, it's it's amazing the work that you that you've done. And uh of course we left a lot about your your PS2 development days in in the uh in the way, but uh maybe someday we'll talk about that. Of course, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks Martin, yeah. thanks Artemio. Thank you very much, Kevin. Take care and have a good time. It's been great talking to you and and seeing how how we can learn grow a community in a better way. Thank you.